Welcome back to Shelf by Genre, a show about types of literature and the worlds they imagine. We are continuing our unit on Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea novels, and today we are discussing the entirety of The Farthest Shore. I am Cameron, and with me here at my stone wall between the lands of the living and the dead are my co-hosts, Michael and Austin. <sighs> you immortal over there, too? Yeah. Yeah, I, maybe we don't even need to do this podcast. I feel like um, it's just like I kind of did everything I need to do already today. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, you feel like you got it, you got it covered? I just think, what's the point? You know, you know. Sometimes yeah. you got. Uh, sometimes you go looking for a truth. No, and 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 you want no. Sometimes you do. No, I don't well, do anything. Hear, hear me anymore. out. Sometimes you, you go looking for it. Oh, it's, we got a truth seeker over uh-huh. here, Michael. Mm-hmm. Wow. We got one of those wow. truth seekers. They yeah. come in our town so, and they tell us they found the truth. But we don't no, believe in the truth over here. No, 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 thinking no, they no. can use their words. No, 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 no. We don't have words anymore, <laughs> truth seeker. Oh, uh oh. We just make sure? sounds. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Podcasting used to be about. Communication about bringing truth to people about words, but the words are nothing. Podcasting yeah, is nothing. That's fine. Y- y'all don't want to find. Uh, you, I know you go looking for truths and you just find hope, but you're not. You don't even want to find hope. I found everything I need right here in this empty gray tavern. Right here at the bottle of this uh, this thing of mead and or vague opium analogy drug. I heard uh, opium analogy drug makes you dream while you're awake. Is that true? <laughs> I guess you could call it that. Huh. Hey, you ever read Ursula K. Le Guin's thoughts about uh, drug use? <laughs> did you read the afterword this time? <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. I did. <laughs> I'm back in the tome, baby. Oh. Yeah, here oh. I am. I'm in the tome getting owned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a hell of a page turn. Yeah. <laughs> hey, remember chapter four or whatever? Uh, we're going back there for a second. Yeah. This yeah. this afterward, not to get way too too way too ahead. This afterward is the most GW afterward. I have that note. I have that exact note written <laughs> yeah. down. I literally do. GW, the famous um, uh, afterward writer for Book of the New Sun. If you didn't listen to those episodes, yes, I read GW. <laughs> This is the most GW shit we've gotten. Who cares about the dragons? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do care about the dragons, but mm-hmm. not in the same way. You ever think about Smaug? <laughs> yeah. And just his whole deal? I do. And so did Le Guin. I really feel like Le Guin went backwards on the dragons. I mean, we'll get there. Damn. But- I feel like we 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 uh, you know on the fixed gear bike of literary uh, uh, production, we're going the opposite way now. Dragons are cool when they're a tower. Statement: Dragons are cool when they're a tower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dragons are cool when they speak their own language. Yeah. Dragons are cool when they uh, yearn for the days of uh, men who are greedy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dragons less cool when they're just doing dragon shit. <laughs> well, like, I think there's like a little cool thing here, which is like they're just doing dragon shit because of the rest of what they are has been kind of taken from them in places. Mm-hmm, yeah. That's but in true. the end, that's they're true. just kind of yeah. doing dragon shit even afterwards. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. it's fine. Yeah. I do like when uh, the the incredibly ancient dragon 
uh, is dispersed with by the plot in a more ancient dragon <laughs> yes! years later to resolve the plot. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And you know that the more ancient dragon is more important and more ancient because it's also non-binary. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> that's true. What? I didn't even think about that or I'll read, but that's true. It's so funny because the whole plot ends up being like the generations of the dead way on the living. Uh, and we got to stop just trying to reach into the past and, and we got to let, we got to get back into the circle of life. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. we got to stop for ex- dragons, except for dragons, in which case the oldest dragon is the coolest one. And that's the one we need. Yeah. <laughs> not a new baby dragon, not a new type of creature, the oldest, mm-hmm. coolest dragon. Yeah. <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> Am I making up that there was like a fairy dragon in the first book? A fairy was that true? No, there was, was um there was the little dragon that oh, yeah. uh uh Vetch's um Minna, whatever the whatever her yeah, real sister, name Yara. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. I'm just uh, I, I yeah, for some reason cool. I, I was like maybe I made that up, but no, no, I didn't yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh it was cool. It's weird that it hasn't come back. Yeah, I I'll be honest, I kind of thought Yarrow would end up being like a character in these books. I I, I kind of yeah. signaled so much when we read that first book. I was like, oh, and here comes here comes the next generation's like dead, you know, like the next hero. Oh, to, no. I one billion percent thought we were gonna get to an evil wizard. Uh-huh. And we'll, we'll we'll talk about the part of this book in a minute. <laughs> I mean, but yeah. I thought we were gonna get to the evil wizard at the end, and it was going to be Jasper. Like I was one I was, thousand yeah. percent certain that was gonna happen. It's just a sideways bet from there. I thought it was going to be Genshin, Genshin. Those were Genshin. Those were Genshin. At the end of the day, the thing that that corrupted the souls of the living and the dead and ruined reality was, in fact, Genshin Impact. Yeah, <gasps> Ursula could see it. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wait, but you uh, thought it was who? Who was it going to be? Genshur, the previous arc mage. I oh, thought, like, yeah. I thought, like, yeah, okay, they cool. keep saying that he died in his sleep or they, like a sickness took him, but, like, maybe I concocted a whole story in my head. I got to tell you. I thought that yeah. maybe Genshur had, after dismissing, after Ged left and, like, confronted the shadow himself mm-hmm. in, in Wizard, was like, hmm, maybe there's something to learn from <laughs> stepping into the, the realm of, of the di- the dry lands, which is what we're calling this now, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and like, you know, we grew old and was like, what if I didn't have to die? What if I could do what Ged did and confront this and overcome it, in uh, but in the wrong way? This is all bullshit. This is based on nothing. This is based on me yes, being like, well, what happened thing to Genshin? Yeah, it's a thing yeah. I made up. <laughs> Source, I made it up. <laughs> yeah, but... Good, yeah. <laughs> you know, no critique here. That's fun. You That's like good. it more than that's just as good as some guy. I guess, yeah, Michael, did you come up with an alternate uh, idea? Yeah, yeah. Do you instead of Cobb, uh, no, the uh, corn cob wizard. Yeah, Cobb the corn cob. <laughs> yeah, like he's he was so dedicated to not being owned, he endangered all life. Yes. <laughs> Um, <laughs> there's such a great moment where gets like, what is your name? And he goes, uh, uh, Cobb, of course. Um, so I didn't, uh, this, this whole book feels very weird to me. And I think what you were saying, Austin kind of gets at why it feels weird and why I didn't quite know what to expect from it or what was going on. Because in, from one perspective, from one way of looking at it, this is a narrative that is like top to bottom like third movement of a trilogy 
like in mm-hmm. terms of like stakes and sort yeah. of little like yeah. callbacks and things. Uh, and then <laughs> on the other, a, I wrote a note that it was this is the, the Silent Hill three of Earthsea, <laughs> where it's like you do the first one and you set up like all the rules of magic and and spookiness or whatever. They do the second one and it's kind of like dark psychological take where you get uh-huh. rid of all the cults and the wizards and you kind of focus mm-hmm. in on just like oh really like it's this is about personalities and this is about power dynamics and you go to the third one you're like oh there's an evil cult <laughs> there's just a, <laughs> remember the cult from the first one it's them again but it's been 15 years let's go back to mm-hmm. that that's what right, this book yeah. is right right there's all these like sort of big fantasy moves like you know capital f fantasy moves uh but at the same time they're all deployed in such a slightly off kilter way <laughs> That so I mean I I also thought Jasper was going to show up, but I thought Jasper was going to turn out to be like Aaron's dad or uncle, possibly, Ooh. right? Oh sure. yeah, yeah. Uh, like I thought that's where that was going to come in. I didn't. I, I it didn't feel like the the big bad, or rather, it did not seem to me that uh, Ursula was interested in the big bad being someone who we saw before and has been like lying in wait this entire time. That didn't feel quite mm, where her sure. interest would lay. Mm-hmm. But I was expecting like some sort of revisitation of Jasper and kind of uh, because like at. Jasper as a character is representative of so many of Ged's like personal shortcomings in that first mm-hmm. book, right? Right. And it should have like, been Tanar. We'll we'll get into this oh, later, been but Tenar. Uh, can you imagine a Tanar reignite? Uh, and then like she has like the, a good argument for why she's doing what she's doing and right, suddenly kind of right. flailing for two chapters. Taken to a uh, logical atheist Ogeon, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Who ponders she rediscovers faith, right? Goes to the ends of the earth. And it's like anyway. I have to get rid of magic from the world. Right. Yeah, that bangs. Because they blew my shit up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think, Michael, I think that you just hit on that is so interesting about this is it it hits so many of the notes of the the end of the trilogy fantasy book. And Mm -hmm. it plays openly with so many of what, what either already were established or now have become solidified as the conventions of the genre with the boy prince mm-hmm. and the magical sword. And like, there's, mm-hmm. it's not like Le Guin is Those afraid. are both in the Lord of the Rings, by the way. Yeah. Well, uh, yes, of course. Yes. I, I'm just saying like, in terms of like, <laughs> of course the big beats, right? Yeah, I mean, like, it's the same. It's the Aragorn restoration stuff for sure. A hundred percent. What's so weird it's about also King that, Arthur. The, it's also King Arthur in the sort of the stone. Like, it's not, yeah. this stuff isn't new, but, and, and she isn't afraid of touching that. She wants that stuff. And is kind of mm-hmm. unironic about all of it. Right. Uh-huh. Like the ring, the ring is back. The ring of, of, of peace and, and magic. That's going to make everybody happy. Comes back into this narrative vaguely. And it's like, well, that didn't do it enough. What we need is a king to, wear the ring um but but also you're right that she doesn't feel like she's interested in the melodramatic return of the villain from the first book so it's like she Mm -hmm. has half Mm -hmm. of what becomes the solidified fantasy convention rule set that she's happy to play with and half of it it feels like she's not eager to engage with and i think that's part of why this book feels so strange to me um as as i read it yeah i think that's 100 right it's uh it is um I mean, I guess it's a little bit too like, again, not, I don't want to bang the Lord of the Rings drum too much on this episode, I think, although I think it would be really easy to because I really do think that this is in deep conversation with it. Mm. Um, I, you're right that, you know, the restoration fantasy doesn't start there, but even in the afterward, which is a little bit of a cheat sheet, right? But like the Lord of the Rings comes up a few times in there too. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like kings, 
boys who would be kings, kings who master the world, rightful people in the rightful place, processing through magic, and also kind of a, a Sauron figure, right? Uh-huh. This kind of evil lord at the end of the world, which you only know by its effects and not its personhood, right? Right. Um, it's which, also- is, which is a little bit different from like the villainy of the the past two books, which uh-huh. which have been personified, right? Um, right? In very particular characters. And here it's not, like at all. It's also, what if Sam were Frodo and were in love with Sam, but Sam is Gandalf and also was 50 years, 35 years older than him. And also Golem was there, but was just a weirdo for a little while in your boat mm-hmm. and drowned and drowned <laughs> himself actually in a moment of fear. So mm-hmm. just they're in the dead marshes walking through and yeah. Colin dies like, <laughs> like halfway through the book. Yeah. And you go, all right. He had a name and everything, he, huh? Yeah. <laughs> He's uh-huh. gone. And a mom. You mean his mom? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we met Gollum's Oh, he comes mom. back. Oh, that's cool. Oh, he co- oh, he doesn't say anything and it doesn't <laughs> yeah. matter. Okay. Okay, cool. Got yeah. it. Got it. Got it. Got it. He's, he's, he's just creepy. scary. He's yeah, he's just he, creepy. He's just creepy scary. All right, let me read the summary so that we can actually talk about the, uh, about about 15 minutes in, we'll, we'll start talking about the plot. Okay. Um, I did the summary the same as I did the last one, I read the whole book and then summarized it. <clears throat> this is my summary for The Far the Shore, book three of six of the Earthsea books, although it is the end of what is initially called the Earthsea trilogy, right? So there's a trilogy, one, two, three, kind of written pretty close to one another and published really close to one another. And then Le Guin takes like a 25 year gap and then does another three books. So we are at the end of, you know, Austin, as you said, right? The trilogy. Also, it's extremely weird now to think about, which I've not thought about before that, that Le Guin around the same time as George Lucas said, you know what? Maybe I gotta go back to that trilogy. <laughs> Maybe I gotta go back. It took almost the same gap, which I don't know what to do with that. Okay. Was it? This is, did Clinton have mm-hmm. to get into office? When did that? When did these both of these happen? Or was it? Was it? Do you think it was? They both saw. Uh, you know, it's like nineteen. Uh, what? What? Like eighty eight, and it's. Uh, Bush says no new taxes. Read my lips. No new taxes, and they go. I'm not. I just can't believe it. We gotta I, go back. I genuinely think it could be about the rise of third way democratic yeah. politics and yeah, like could be. Yeah. those old those old radical feelings bubbling up. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, like Clinton's like, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> Clinton says the, the the primary thing we have to do is refactor the welfare system, uh-huh. mm-hmm. right? Like as as the number one priority. Yeah, that's probably bad. That probably gets you thinking. This is all uh, bullshit, but who knows, right? I don't, I don't know. Could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's things we're making up. I don't. It's, there's probably an afterword about it. We just haven't gotten there. We yet. just don't know. Yeah. All right. This is my summary for the farthest shore. Earthsea is all fucked up. Sorcerers and witches are losing their powers, and wizards are too. Madness stalks the lands, and the beautiful things are going silent. A young prince named Aaron is sent to Roke, the stronghold of magic, to appeal to the archmage to fix all of this. The rot has set in at the periphery, but it might soon come even for the most powerful. After much discussion, the archmage decides to strike out with Aaron into the world so that they might fix the magical problems that plague the lands. Oh, and also that Archmage is really old. He's wizened, and he's got that old people hair. And yet, guess what? He's also Ged. That's right. Our pal Ged has grown up to be the Archmage, but it turns out that getting that amulet in the last book didn't fix anything after all. 
There is no unified world, no king to steer the world right, and he's bummed out about it. But he's also a guy who does stuff, so off he goes with Aaron to fix things. What follows is a series of events where Aaron learns a little bit about how to be a good guy, more than a prince, and Ged deals with his mistakes. They go to Hort Town, and Aaron is sold into slavery while they're trying to find the source of corruption. They learn that madness and magecraft are going hand in hand, and they pick up another guy who leads them to an island where people almost kill Ged with bronze-tipped spears. They drive and or no, they don't drive anywhere. They drift. <laughs> they hop in their Cadillac and drive. <laughs> <laughs> they get into the, uh, the the car from Back to the Future, which is, which flies. Uh, they drift into the wide ocean beyond all the islands and are picked up by mythological raft people who cheer them up and help Ged fix his spear wound. And then they're tracked by a dragon and eventually led to the problem that is ruining wizard stuff all around the world. Once in the past, Ged found a man who was messing around with raising the dead. Arrogantly seeking to dominate him and give him a lesson, Ged stole the man away into the shadow realms and forced him to, f to forsake his fallen magics. Having humbled the wizard, Ged left and eventually became the Archmage. Except the guy was not humbled. He just decided to get really good at death magic. It eventually died, but in dying, became immortal. In this process, he opened a door to nothing at the heart of the Shadowlands, which is sort of like opening the drain plug at the bottom of existence. An ancient dragon takes Ged and Aaron to the place where all this stuff is happening, and the evil wizard kills the dragon right before Ged and Aaron pursue him into the Shadowlands, a.k.a. the Drylands. They roam there for a while. Ged expends all of his magic to close the door, and they eventually pass all the way through the land of the dead to come out the other side and back into the land of the living. In doing this, Aaron has fulfilled an ancient prophecy to be the rightful unifying Aragorn, uh, uh, king of all of Earthsea. Another, even more ancient dragon flies them back to Roke, <laughs> drops Aaron off, and then takes Ged to his home island of Gaunt, where he kind of becomes a super Ogeon. Then Aaron becomes the one true king, and the book is over. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of it. Yeah. That's it. That's what happens. This is one of those books where there's a prophecy in the second chapter, and you're like, oh, I get it. Okay. Yeah. Do I have to keep reading, yeah. or is that just that's going to happen? Okay. <laughs> He you, shall inherit my throne who has crossed the dark land living and come to the far shores <laughs> of the day. All right. Yeah, that's what happens. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Maharian. Well, you know, I definitely thought, I thought we were going to get a little bit of uh, Le Guin trickery here, right? Same. Because the, the conversation that happens there is they're like, wait a minute, though. And this is like, <laughs> this is really good because we've read the two previous books where this stuff has happened and been talked about, right? Because they say, well, what happens when you go to like the dry lands, aka the dead lands, aka the shadow lands, when you go there, every other time you've like gone in and come back out. It's kind of like, you know, diving into the water or something, right? You like, you don't go through the ocean floor and come out the other side, mm -hmm. right? And so someone says when that prophecy comes up, they're like, well, that's not how it works. And they go, <laughs> yeah, no, that's weird, right? And you're like, oh, yeah. Now, when we get there at the end of the book, what happens is they just do it. <laughs> they just pass through the Shadowlands. Just, uh -huh. It seems just no one's done it before. Well, and there's another weird thing, right? Which is like the problem is that uh, I almost said knob. That's wrong. Cobb, <laughs> the evil wizard, uh, has uh -huh. opened a door between yeah. the two realms and they close it. And then they just climb the mountain and take the back exit back into the real world. Yeah. Yeah, so I get it. Maybe it's easier for evil to sneak out the cave than climb the mountain or whatever. <laughs> but I think the metaphor is a little busted. 
It's a yeah, little bit I sleepy thought- <laughs> time. I'm making up a story for my little cousin. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh-huh. I do. Th- I thought we would get some that that traveling across would 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 have like a double meaning, or it right. would be there would be a name that would be you know. I don't know. Right. I just thought there would be some like earth sea magic. I'll be honest. They, I thought there'd they, be like a big weird swing at the end where like if they die in the realm of death, they are reborn as different people in life or some, you know what I mean? I thought mm-hmm. like yeah. there'd be a, yes. mm-hmm. yeah. they just get to come out and go back to life. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's yeah. very rare that a prophecy shows up that is this straightforward that everyone's <laughs> like, well, this could be fulfilled in this way, except that's a thing that typically doesn't happen. And then the thing that typically doesn't happen happens and the prophecy is fulfilled. Mm-hmm. It weirdly enough, I guess, is like a flip of the of the stuff that it's riffing off of, which is like, yeah. you know, folk tales where you invert the expectation, and that that even shows up in the Lord of the Rings with the no man of woman born mm-hmm. thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like that is that is fun in that story or whatever, right? But that's part of a long thing going back to things like you know the the Arthur romances or whatever, right? Where the answer is the thing you didn't know you were looking for or whatever, and this is. So straightforward that it, it that it, I guess maybe it is breaking with tradition in that way. Yeah. Um, but there's also there's also just uh, I, it's funny because like last time we went kind of beat by beat and we can still go beat by beat through this if we want to. I'm not saying we should. Well, there's only like seven beats. There's so only it's, like there's seven not beats, that many and you beats. just said them. Um, but yeah. also, I think some of the more interesting topics are these kind of broader, far-reaching ones. So like one mm-hmm. of the things I kept thinking about was I was surprised coming off of. Um, uh, Adewan, that there's so much work done to uh, work through the way magic works in this book. Um, there's like it's mm-hmm. it's yeah. and it's it's not like a you know, there's a lot of ged being like, now. Let me slow down and explain the rules of this thing to you uh, really quick. And I'm not saying that it's like systemic magic. I don't think it's the same thing as like contemporary fantasy stuff where there is a quote unquote magic system. Um, mm-hmm. But there are conversations throughout that are like. A little too, like, I feel like it's Le Guin, it felt like it was Le Guin untying the knots of of the lore and the way magic works. And this is never more true than, like, when Ged goes true neutral druid and is talking about the balance (laughs) and, Mm -hmm. you know, what it means and and what, what evil is and where evil is located and how the rules change and how they don't change and... Like, I didn't necessarily need the, like, in-character Lord Dump version of a splat book for Earthsea, you know? But, like, by Chapter mm-hmm. 5, Ged is like, okay, you know about how rules change in the reaches, right? Like, seamen say that all the time. Well, the world is big, and so the, the you know, magic change, it's like, we kind of already got that in the first book pretty, you know, in a much more evocative way. And so here, where we're, like, revisiting all that stuff, I was a little surprised because... Adewan suggested a different ambition for what the series was, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, a- absolutely. That is that is exactly how I feel. Like, like Adewan was such a uh, sort of welcome surprise just in terms of what it did with the question of, like, what is the second book in a series like? Uh, and this is so just expected or, like... It, expected in one way and unexpected because it didn't seem as expected at first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Like even the, um, like the way that it starts with the, the sort of like we get introduced to all the new members on the council and everything, <laughs> right? There's right. Like th- yeah. there's like, 
Right, all these weird we, little... We could just straight up cut away at one point to watch <laughs> one do. dude's will break in real okay. time, it, which is not something that would ever happen in the previous two books, right? That no. would never occur. We are yeah. so hinged to Aaron for most... Is that, that's his name, right? I'm not getting it wrong, yeah. Aaron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Aaron. 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 Um, yeah. that, that, that I was shocked when we got this weird cutaway. It felt like an editor had said, now, wait a second. He runs into Thorian in the drylands. You better set that up before I show Thorian getting owned <laughs> or something. Like, I, why did we leave that? Part? In a way I was like, Ooh, this is fun. I'd like to see more perspective shifting in this setting. Actually, that could be fun to do. And then it never happens again, really for the rest of the book. Yeah. So anyway, sorry, Michael, you were saying oh, we meet all those uh, yeah. mages uh, at the beginning. Well, yeah, we meet all these mages. There's something about the way that, um, uh, especially in the first book, that sort of the goings on at Roke and whatnot. Uh, it was all, it was all a very light hand, just the slightest implication or very briefly sketched. And here we get uh, the like introduced to all the people on the wizard council one after the other and kind of get little stories about them. The feeling that I had, I don't know if this makes any sense at all, but it's kind of like. I remember uh, watching the Power Rangers movie when I was a kid, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And there was this way of like seeing all these actors and all of these costumes that I was used to seeing on the small screen uh, suddenly like with a with a budget, right? It's like this is this is the Red Ranger suit, but it's also not quite the Red Ranger suit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Right. This the sense that there was a little bit too much like gloss to everything uh, based on what I had come to actually know as the thing itself. (laughs) Hmm, That's interesting. So you're telling me you didn't think that perhaps the uh, the the was it the Black Ranger who got a frog? Was it him? Uh, A frog? Did Zach get a frog? They switch. They switch, I think, Zords in one of the movies or something. I know he starts out Mm -hmm. as a Mastodon or a woolly mammoth. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, but they get, cool they get like different things. Yeah. They get different things in the movie. Yeah. yeah. When they're fighting that ooze man. Yeah, I have an ooze. That's right. Yeah. He wanted everyone to, to drink his slurp. It's kind of what yeah. this guy wants too, in a sense. It is kind of it is kind of like that. But I I I think that's right, uh, Michael. Like there's a there's a weird um the thing's gotta jump up in scope, mm-hmm. right? Because it's about the end of the world. Yeah, right, literally, but the 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 Earthsea toolbox does not get that big, right? And so it's like watching someone like build a car with like the tiniest screwdriver set on Earth. Well, it's not. This is maybe what here's a thing that happens in this book. It's not about the end of the world at the beginning. It's about magic isn't working anymore, mm-hmm. and then it becomes a power has settled over the world. And people aren't enjoying their lives anymore. And it's been, they have, you know, uh, fallen into drudgery and depression and routine and no one. And then, and then it's not just magic that's gone. It's making, it's, it's dying things and uh, singing songs. And there's a, there's a kind of weird. On this island, we used to make stuff. It literally (laughs) is that. We used to build things on this island. We used to dye cloth. It is. The note I have here is, is this the most we've seen liquid and anthropologist mode in Earthsea? There are the addicts in their drug dens, the community of downtrodden silk farmers, which in my own personal notes I say, who are suffering an economic downturn, and the noble (laughs) savages of the open sea, the raft community. Like it is, it is like one mid-century ethnological study after another. 
Like it is, mm-hmm. it is. And like, that's the bulk of the book. Then you finally yeah. get to the final three or four chapters and it's like, okay, let's go wrap this up. But the the middle of this book is just like, all right, you know, get an errand, go to a place and see, get the vibe, you know, and then <laughs> maybe one of them gets kidnapped or attacked or they talk to a, an old witch woman or who, I mean, she, she's a woman mm-hmm. of power, please. She's not an old witch woman. They make a very yeah, clear, cool. clear differentiation. Um, and it's, it's a little, it's just a little weird and it does have a sheen to it to go back to the Power Rangers movie comparison, which <laughs> yeah. I think is right. Um, it yeah. has a strange sheen to it that I don't expect. I expect a, a, a muddiness to Earthsea at this point, not the gleaming sword that only unsheathes itself in the face of danger. And I think part of what ends up happening is the move from magic is leaving the world to uh, a gray fog is descending on on everybody because they're so caught up in there. It's it's because they be on them phones is kind of what's yeah, happening yeah. here. 50 Basically, years early. yeah, um, yeah. Uh, which is not a new concern, and it's not a bad concern. I get it. You know, mm-hmm. I think the the well, rise of mass you know consumer culture is worth responding to. But there's a but there's a a, a, a juggling of different metaphors mm-hmm. for it that begin with wizards can't cast spells anymore, and eventually uh, evolves into and regular people who, by the way, don't count as much in some ways because uh, mm-hmm. they can't do any of this other cool shit that us artists and wizards can, or kings. Mm-hmm. Kings are also powerful um, in this way. Because uh, people respect them. Because they yeah, because mm-hmm. people respect them. Um, uh, hey, uh, everybody is just kind of sad right now. And I don't think well, that's bad. Let me hit you with some. Can I hit you with some context that, that might be um, fuel for the discussion here? Yeah. So. One of the things that, like, I think we, the three of us are, like, deeply aware of here, but uh, that maybe set some boundaries also on the way that we talk about the book is this thing is just bleeding the 1960s, right? Oh, yeah. And what what seems to be felt as a failed project of the 60s. And and uh, Le Guin is saying that in the afterwards, so we're kind of poisoned by knowledge in that way, too. But even while I was reading it, I was going, oh, my God, like, this is just someone looking at 68, in yeah. thinking, well, what happened? And what we mean by that when we say the project of the 60s or 68 in particular is that um, there there was a feeling among the left in particular in the United States in the 60s that real gains could be had and and a serious project of, of leftism could be pursued in the United States. And in some places it was. Um, but broadly, by the time we are in 1970, 71, 72, that project has been tamped down on violently in lots of ways. Lots of people have been assassinated. Uh, lots of people have been imprisoned. Um, that movement, whatever that nascent and amalgamated and big complicated movement it is, has lots of different factions, some, are, some of which are anti-militarism, some of which are highly mil- militaristic. They all have very different strategies to them. Um, and uh, it's a big jumble we might say. And it's hard to look at the farthest shore and not think, damn, this is the the, look at the jumble, right? (laughs) Like, look at all these people who are working at odds with one another. And it seems like Ged has this kind of perspective of, or not even Ged having the perspective of, but what you were talking about earlier with kind of giving us a bigger um, understanding of like the magic system and the balance and all this stuff, right? That to me reads as a, intervention or a way of thinking about the way that things work out and equal out and and needing to have language to talk about all the complicated reality that's happened um, in that moment. So that's like piece number one. It's a little hopeless in some ways. Oh, it feels deeply hopeless. Which is like, well, I guess we live in a world of kings. If that's true, 
Yeah. Let me at least write a book for children, which this is the most this series has felt like it's been for children, not just yes. young readers, not just, I'm not saying it doesn't respect children readers. There's, there's plenty, you know, technically that goes in here into the pros and the structure. That I don't know. I mean, that. it feels like it but is a for children book, in some places. In a different I, way, hundred percent. But it feels hey, you like got Prince blood. You're de- you you <laughs> yes. are deigned to rule <laughs> men. And right? so if that's the way the world is, let's not waste ink spilling, uh, uh, you know, imagining another structure for the world. Let's talk about what it might mean to be a good king. What are the lessons yep. that the young kings might need to learn? Mm. Welcome to our new podcast, Young Kings. Uh, we're here for <laughs> entrepreneurs and other other rising grinders to uh, help you figure out how to get through the world in an ethical way. Second piece of context. she The novel she publishes right before this is The Lathe of Heaven. Um, <laughs> I don't know if y'all have read this book before. You, do you know this book? 20 years ago, but yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like kind of about reality manipulation. It's yeah. largely understood, and maybe even she even says this. It's also been a long time since I've read it, but uh, it's understood understood to be her Philip K. Dick pastiche novel or commentary novel. Um, and so it's Le Guin playing in the Philip K. Dick toolbox. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and it's often in her oeuvre, it, it's really weird. You know, in her 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 series of works and her bibliography, it's taken to be weird and people are either very hot or very cold on it. It's very non-traditional for her, especially given what she'd written so far. So in some ways, if she's working on those at the same time or maybe that one right before this one, this is a return to a core of fantasy in a way that that is a very far out book. So that's like piece of context number two that's maybe worth thinking about in the thing. Which you have to you have to touch on here at least briefly that Lathe Mm -hmm. of Heaven and I mean Philip K. Dick's works intersect with drug culture really broadly. Yeah. And drug culture means a lot of different things. Drug culture means both, uh, you know, the the under, the under drug scene, the underground drug scene, the use of drugs inside of, uh, you know, uh, the hippie community inside of artist communities, et cetera, but also means the growing establishment of the pharmaceutical industry, um, uh, which is a sort of uh, commercial professionalization of, of the drug world. Um, uh, and that's, those things intersect in different ways Throughout the works of both Dick and I would say in Late of Heaven. Though again, I haven't read it in 20 years. This is a thing I remember. I might have written an essay about this in, in college or something, you know. <laughs> um, but anyway. Um, and, and Philip K. Dick, well-known drug addict. Yeah, I mean, right? yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes, uh, yes. Just for people who don't know, <laughs> Sorry, right? Yes, um, I should have said that more clearly. Uh, addicted to speed, really, in yeah. various different forms of speed uh, for most of his lifetime. Eventually dies because of it. Um, right basically blows out most of his organs um, because he was on speed for so long. He eventually kind of, uh, uh, he um, was attempting to get clean for a long time and was kind of up and down with it. Um, but well, and that's, uh, yeah. Quarterly of Heaven is drug use to change the world, to, to imagine different worlds, right? Which yeah. is the way, one of the ways it intersects with Dick, right? Yeah, um, in which he explicitly, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this in more Detail in a minute, but the uh, the afterward explicitly said is judgmental of that. Le Guin's like that's bad. Yeah, don't would, do that. you didn't even need the afterward. This book is just that. You know, right? Yeah. Right. But, but in it's her own words, textually, be like, "Hey, excuse yeah. me." <laughs> uh, but uh, so okay, so those two pieces of context. Third piece of context. After we recorded our last podcast, whatever we the last one we did, it might have been Labyrinth. It was. Um, so maybe that's when I just started like bombarding y'all with like information about yes. Ursula Le Guin because I just sat here at my desk for like another hour <laughs> fiddling with that. 
what kind of happens in the early 70s is like when starts becoming really involved with science fiction studies, which is kind of attached right. to the Science Fiction Writers Association. It's not, I don't know if it's an official organ. I can't really tell. At some, at some point, it becomes abstracted from it. But, but um, the science fiction studies is a journal, like an academic journal, but that had huge crossover between kind of public advocates, so editors and pundits around science fiction, authors, and then academics. All these things are kind of happening at one time. And Le Guin was a reviewer. She, she reviewed a bunch of different stuff. Um, she was a, uh, really big advocate in that journal for the Strugatskys, the Strugatsky brothers who, um, uh, wrote the picnic novel, and, yeah, Roadside okay. Picnic, yeah, yeah okay. that, that, uh, Stalker's based off of. Right. Um, and then eventually Stanislaw Lim, who at some point, uh, correction here, by the way, at some point, uh, I, I called him Russian, I believe on the show. He's not Russian, he's Polish. Mm. Um, but, but, uh, you know, correction crew here. The uh, so she ends up defending him. There's a thing that happens a little bit later on called the Lim Affair, uh, where it's it's where Stanislaw uh, Lim said that the only science fiction writer uh, that worked in English that he thought was worth reading was Philip K. Dick, and everyone got really mad about that <laughs> and like tried to try to you know uh, remove him from all these international organizations or whatever. Mm. But she ends up defending him. But what's really fascinating, the reason I bring any of this up is that she's really involved in that kind of academic-y critical movement. She's reviewing people's books and and trying to kind of be a, a little bit of an advocate for especially non-Anglophone work and, and trying to bridge the gap between the U.S. and the USSR, right? She's very purposely doing that. But also, it is pretty clear immediately through the 70s that her people are really interested in her science fiction work and are not interested at all in the Earthsea right. book. Sure. Hmm. Interesting. Um, within that community, there's a there's a special issue dedicated to Le Guin in like 76, maybe. I didn't write this down. But a, a few years after this, and only one person in the whole issue even mentions the Earthsea books. <laughs> I like, I get it. I, I'm not saying that they're right for it, right? But I, mm. in that context where we have not, we are speaking in a world where there has been a reevaluation of what children's media is and what its value is and what children mm -hmm. and young readers are uh, capable of as writers or as readers and as writers in some ways. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it seems absurd to dismiss these books today. At the time, it's so easy to imagine her community being like, well, yeah, that's stuff she does because like it it helps pay rent, you know, helps pay 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 the mortgage bill. But her real stuff is this other heady science fiction work, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I get how they get there. Even now, we would it would be, it would be at the very least. I think um, we live in a world where where, <laughs> where there is a lot of um, uh, kind of financial encouragement to to if someone has a name as big as Le Guin, you're going to care about everything she produces because yeah. That's how it works now. They are an industry, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So thanks to thanks Stephen King, by the way. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. <laughs> Good job, bud. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll email him. Yeah, I'll email let him know what you have to say. But but I say all that precisely to say, you know, to kind of give that context that you're talking about, Austin, which is like, right. these are big fantasy books from our vantage here. But at the time, it was hard to give anyone, to, even people who were invested in Le Guin already, right? right. And, and people who were saying things like she is a master of the genres she works in, right? And these are people who were saying that, and she's only been publishing in this area for like a decade at that point, right? 
even even those people are are completely ignoring Earthsea uh, in favor of um, you know uh, essentially the the first three books and then Left Hand and then the Dispossessed a little bit later on. Can I ask another kind of biographical question? Um, yeah, uh, which is especially in the context that you just laid out, which is to what degree is Le Guin? You know, Le Guin is someone who I think of as kind of famously. Um, an anarchist writer, uh, or or her writing has lines of anarchism through it, and she's talking yeah. about her anarchism. Um, yeah. To what degree is she active in any sort of political spaces uh, in this period? Uh, doing maybe not activism right. necessarily, right, or organizing or anything like that, but like to what degree is it the work speaks for her versus she is part of any sort mm-hmm. of political community or political groups? I can tell you about actual political affiliation or even academic I, affiliations that are yeah. you know adjacent you know what i mean yeah. i you know so i mean i can tell you what her stance her published stances are right sure. which is like we need to care about one another right <laughs> you know mm-hmm. which sounds like some horse shit right I mean, like from but also like thinking post 68 yeah, and I also know. thinking yeah. about like the context she's in that that maybe is like kind of a, a radical statement she consistently in these USSR versus US uh, conversations that appear throughout the 70s in at least the one journal, right? You know, I can't, mm-hmm. I'm not an expert on this. I've just spent a little bit of time reading around it in the archive. Um, she calls herself and is called repeatedly unaligned, mm-hmm. um, which is that she will not take a hard stance that like US science fiction means certain things and embodies certain ideals or sure. Western, we, we might even say, right, not just US, but NATO, NATO fiction, <laughs> NATO science fiction, right, means certain things. Um, and she kind of refuses to, she refuses to, um, I mean, like I said, right, she actively is reaching across to these writers who right. are being translated. And I, I believe that, like, the Strugatskys, like, that, the, it comes out of, um, I think Russia. I think they are Russian, right? Comes out of, comes out of the Russian language into French, and then from French is translated into English, I believe. There's no direct translation. So these books are even weirder at that point. Um, and she's making the effort, right? And she also speaks French, right? And right. she taught French, all this kind of stuff. So I think she is like actively seeking out ways to build bridges, but she also refuses, like she is deeply, you know, anti-Stalinist, um, right? Right, right? Very, very yeah. against like yeah. that, you know, authoritarian big quotation marks here right but the the way that the ussr is understood to be politically organized by people in the u.s at this point um staunchly anti-communist maybe question mark i would say right like that's fundamentally right mm -hmm. yes state anti-state communism yeah yeah Um, i'd imagine anarcho-communism has has some uh you know Find some home there, but but not the sort of state driven. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've always like seen Le Guin associated with anarchism, you know, and as you said, as an anarchist writer, I have not seen anywhere in the places where I've been reading around these books, right? So right. late sixties, early seventies, to I've not ever seen her use that word, right? Um, although that might show up in some of the stuff that we have talked about doing for a bonus episode, some of her nonfiction. So sure. We'll be able to dive a little bit closer into that. But but that's all to say, right, like, 
I think you can feel in the farthest shore all that stuff. And, and look, at the end of the day, there's like a dead evil empire over here. I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? for sure. Where that kills people's souls and like keeps them from being able to accomplish good free market, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> ideals. There, there's well, something I mean, going on I, here. Yeah, I do think that, you know, I, I, I kind of poked fun at the idea that there was a sort of strange you know, tiered citizen or, or cast, you know, vision that she puts forward here of like, ah, there are, there are the people who have power, you know, kings and, and singers and writers and wizards. Um, uh, and they are being, they are being crushed. And then there's a knock on effect, which is everybody else gets crushed. And like, yeah. I, you know, I'm poking fun at, at the sort of, you know, when you tell that sort of story, you're, you're really saying something about people who don't do that sort of thing for a living, who don't tell stories and sing songs and are creative, quote unquote, makers is the term that gets used throughout this, um, <laughs> which is very funny. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, makers and creators, you know, the maker and creator economy. I uh, wouldn't have a lot to say about it. Um, but yeah. I do fundamentally think that what she's responding to is Some sort of dark Lord disrupting the creator economy. God, miserable. <laughs> I do think that there's a read of this, which is, Hey, look at how the growing um, industrialization and commercialization of art and entertainment, which is in super full swing um, mm-hmm. by this point, by 72 or whatever this is, um, you know, is, is fundamentally deleterious to the soul of the human being that when you mm-hmm. shut down, when the, when you can't make the beautiful dyes you used to be able to make the little community nearby falls into, you know, despair, right? Um, when you can't sing the songs anymore, the songs that connect you, not only to your little raft community in the sea, but across the whole world. And we all celebrate the new year or whatever that is. When that, when we can't, you know, produce uh, uh, music to do that for each other anymore, we can't sing the songs anymore. Everybody is is worse off for it. And I, you know, I think that that is responding to again, like there's a sort of um, there's a sort of window that has moved uh, in terms mm-hmm. of how broad hope can be. And if you're not going to be able to imagine different futures, you know, there's a, there's a line later on about how um, uh, <laughs> this is in the raft people section of the open sea where they say like uh it's not simple people but it's something similarly it's like naive living or something like that uh is not evil you know it doesn't it doesn't hold off evil but it does do some good um and it feels like that's kind of the message not the message but that's kind of the scope of the ethos of the book does that make sense that like Mm -hmm. hey we might be in a moment where we can't necessarily stop the big evil like that's happening but there is some good we can do to like lift ourselves in the small scale um uh and that i think is is uh, it's just again it's a little tough sometimes um and it means that she's that she's writing in a different space like she's not writing in an overtly political space and we can do political readings she's writing a you know a, a book for children about what it means to be a good person what it means to be a good person who who grows mm-hmm. into power what it means to uh, have balance in the world, the value of nature, the fact that you can't have life without death, and that and that you you know good things are in in too much are in, in excess or dangerous, and oh that's fine, but it's it's it does lack something from those previous books, and you you mm-hmm. may have put a finger on it in terms of the context. Yeah, so I, I guess two things about that too, right? Which is like, I think. I think ultimately I just don't like this book. Maybe yeah. that's not a shocker yeah. 48 minutes in, right, or whatever. I don't think this book's very good. I think I would be okay never having read it. 
and partially it's because what you just you just hit the nail on the head, Austin, which is like this is a great book for communicating all these, you know, for doing like what does it mean to live well within the context you're in, whatever, right? We already read that book. It's called Wizard of Earthsea. It's a better book. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, oh. right. Um, and that book didn't I, suffer from like being undergirded by a question that this book is like determined by, but a question that the book never answers, which is why on earth does Earthsea need a king? Great question. Like there is just well, it, there's this John F. Kennedy guy, right? Oh. <laughs> right. We need uh, this young uh, elite, uh, but who's got who's very good hearted, even though he is maybe not not too bright all the time. But he's he's got big feelings. He loves the mm -hmm. people that he loves, and he's going to lead us to something new. Mm -hmm. Also, Aaron's, Aaron's brother who becomes like sheriff of the Earth Sea. <laughs> <laughs> who wait so so uh who was the wizard that jfk had a huge crush on <laughs> oh, let's see who's the wizard it's it's probably like uh it's it's, it's roosevelt right oh it's roosevelt <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. Is it, he's the aged wizard it's just yeah. like you know you gotta do a little fancy stuff let, let me make a plug here by the way because there is a another range touch product that you could go check out that uh actually gives a lot of context to the whole conversation we're having over on Game Study Study Buddies, uh, a while back, Michael and I read a book called Well Met, Renaissance Fairs and the oh, American Counterculture yeah. by Rachel Lee Rubin. Sorry, it's about say the name the of the author again because I was going, oh, yeah. R Rachel Lee Rubin. There we go. You can get it for under $30, it looks like. I bet you can get it used for way cheaper. It is about where Renaissance Fairs come from, and it's uh, the author kind of does a, a cultural history of them. But the thing that made me think about that is the stuff you were talking about, Austin, because in that book, there's a whole section, maybe even a whole chapter. Michael, tell me if tell me if uh, if this rings bells for you. But it's about the craft revival movement, right? I believe that's its own chapter or at least like the, mm -hmm. a subsection of a chapter. I remember we read a lot about it, but yeah. it's it's precisely about like uh, around the same time post kind of hippie movement post uh you know kind of leftist movements of the 1960s people really started caring about it, it's in response to the materialism stuff that that you know Le Guin obviously is reacting to right um and so going back to handmade goods and being able to trade them back and forth and do that and that obviously comes with a lot of different context and a lot of different uh, mm -hmm. problems that you could you should read the book to learn about the history of all of that stuff and and the uh, essentially corporate capture of all of those things nearly immediately um but it, it's you know it's a cool book to read if you want to hear about the other people in the world who were who were thinking of themselves as creators and makers and singers and performers who were looking for maybe a non-capitalist way of actually engaging with that out of the 60s and 70s and what I would say is ultimately their failure, um, not because of effort or will or anything. They just they just lost, right? Like capitalism ate their whole deal. Um, but the book is really good. I really enjoyed reading it. To go back to, because as always, there are listeners who have not read along with us and and who might be saying like, oh, I read this book when I was a kid, or I've never read this, but I. I saw the Studio Ghibli version of it, uh, which I've not seen, by the way. But I do know. Yeah, this we probably is have like to watch key. that. We gotta right? watch I, that. hundred percent. Yeah. I read the Wikipedia plot summary, and oh boy, does it make some decisions! All right, so we gotta watch it then <laughs> at some point. I'm excited. <laughs> I think to. So.
Yeah, I've never seen it. I've never um, even thought to watch it. But so. if you if you have not engaged with this directly, you might be thinking that we are jumping to conclusions or overstating something. But, you know, chapter 2, 261 in The Tome, a character, um, now again, this is a character speaking, but, but let me tell you, this character doesn't get, no one ever disputes this for the rest of the book. <laughs> Quote, how long has it been, 17 years or 18, since the Ring of the King's Rune was returned to the Tower of Kings in Havnor? There, there, uh, things are better for a while then, but now they're worse than ever. It's time there was a king again on the throne of Earthsea to wield the sign of peace. People are tired of wars and raids and merchants who overprice the who overprice and princes who overtax and the confusion of unruly powers. Roke guides, but it can't rule. The balance lives here, but the power with a capital P should lie in the king's hands. What are we doing? I don't... I, and then I, enter... I mean, we're going to Earthsea, my man. A prince, <laughs> <we> and this <laughs> is being said to a prince who would yeah. be king. It, oh, there's yeah. no artistry around it or any... You know what I mean? This isn't... <laughs> it's, it's just like, hey, could you become king for us, please? We really <laughs> need a ruler so bad. You know, I love I love that, P. I'm glad you read that because I, I think I missed the second part of that. I didn't... I didn't realize that they had brought the ring to Havnor and yeah. then took it away again because it's on Ged's staff now. Yeah. He's yeah. looking for so, someone so to give it to. So he took it there and he's like, nah, I'm going to hang on to it. <laughs> I'm good. I'm Archmage. Oh. Dang. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we and that happens, what, five times over the course of this book, right? Where we get some <laughs> version of that rightful king speech. Yeah, yeah. We get some version of it. I mean, at one point, Ged literally is looking over this kid while he's asleep and, go, and going, "Gosh, I just, I wish, I, I hope I get to live long enough to kneel at the feet of this guy. I knew thee first. Yeah, I, yeah. That'll right? be my claim to fame. I knew the great king. And like, and again, <laughs> go ahead. So, I mean, I wish Frodo it. said this during the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I, I wish, he, I wish he was looking at Aragorn. He's like, I, I want to be able to. But tell again, why Sam does him. say yeah. this about Frodo. Oh, probably. Yeah, <laughs> he does. That's why. That's why I used that analogy earlier. Yeah, so yeah. It really, yeah. if it's what if Sam, what if what if Aragorn was Frodo, but also kind of Sam in the way that he's like set up, and mm -hmm. also he wants he's in love with slash looking for the guidance of Gandalf, who is also Sam but also Frodo. Someone draw this transposition chart. Thank please. you. <laughs> please Photoshop. Clean it up. up. Make Michael it make sense. But. Yeah, only a get little bit. linear. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, yeah. Uh, but Michael, what were you saying? Sorry. Uh, uh, I don't remember. There was at least one thing that was good, and now it's gone forever. Uh, <laughs> so I this get my dig in about Aragorn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other thing. So this is actually part of the <sighs> the setup of the novel that I actually like. Right? Is like I kind of like that uh, Wizard of Earthsea is young Ged. Uh, Adewan is like someone else's story entirely until Ged shows up and he's in his <laughs> 20s or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right? And then I kind of like that the third move here is to give us old and old and wizened Ged. And by old and wizened, mm -hmm. I don't know. I think he might be something like 50. I think he's um, 50, yeah. 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 I think that's about right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but this pays off something that Leguin has said in, in interviews and in writing about Earthsea is that you know, her idea for when she, when she was 
presented with the problem of writing a fantasy novel, she was wondering, you know, what is what is there to write? Like, what is an interesting hook for this? And she realized, well, Gandalf and Merlin must have been young men at one point. So let's mm-hmm. tell yeah. that story, right? And so we're kind of brought full circle here where right. uh, Ged gets to be the Merlin to Aaron. Right. Uh, and that's the that's the whole I knew thee first, right? That's uh, that's Merlin guiding young Arthur. Um, I like that conceptually, uh, and also it does feel just kind of out of nowhere in terms of what I said earlier. Like, mm-hmm. why does Earthsea need a king? In fact, it actually felt very fresh and exciting to me in that first book, where there wasn't one king over all of Earthsea. Earthsea was just a place where people lived. Yeah. Not I mean, anymore. part of it, I think, I, I think part of it is that Ged in getting older, and this is where the book ends too, right? He talks several times uh, uh, in the book about kind of being a man of action and and wanting to have been a man of contemplation. Right. And I think that there is like a deep, I don't know, bummer quietism, you know, for yeah. lack of a better way of saying it, right? This kind of, I don't know, quietening, dampening down. Where Ged is is essentially three or four times in the book saying something to the effect of, I've spent my whole life doing stuff, and I just want to shut the hell up for a while and let someone else do things. Yeah. And I want to not have to be responsible. And I that is just like I th- on one hand, that's radical because it's like the fantasy protagonist saying, I don't want to have to do things anymore is not a thing that we associate with fantasy. And that's interesting. And the idea that you need to pass things off to the next generation is worth thinking about, yeah, right? Like sure. that, That's not a Gandalf. A Gandalf's not doing that, right? He's just so strong, he can't do the thing for you because mm-hmm. it would be a problem, right? He has like the opposite problem. He's too <laughs> actionable. But on the other hand, that is like the most bleak political <laughs> idea humanly possible to be like, I think I've just had to do too much and uh, <laughs> I don't want to have to think too hard anymore. I want to I I have my OG on years. You know, and and it's kind of a betrayal of Ged as a character, right? (laughs) What I was going to say is uh, he has that whole thing where he's like, I knew thee first, right? I I just hope I get through this long enough to kneel at your feet. The end of the book, he doesn't even do that. He doesn't even do that. (laughs) He either, we get it, we get it, we get our choice of endings. He either stays home. Yeah, it is pretty cool. It's like he either stays home or he disappears forever. Yeah. 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 They went looking for him. They couldn't find him. They couldn't. Find I like him. that. I do. I do like the this. I hope to God we don't come back to Ged. I don't know what happens in the other three books. Like I truly don't know. I hope Ged's gone forever. I hope we never return to Ged. Okay. Uh oh. <laughs> I I cannot imagine a world where we don't return to Ged. I mean, I can't either. But I'm I'm just I'm I'm putting in my requests. Yeah. You know. I see. For reality here. Yeah. I got you. I'm doing that all the time. It's never working out. Have you considered doing a magical science fiction drug before you put your dreams into the world? Because that <laughs> would make them go. reality. I am thinking, well, sometimes that allows like a shadow guy with a light to show up. Oh, yeah, that's a problem. You got to be careful. And then, and then the slavers come and get you. Yeah, then you get yeah. clonked on the head and then turned into a slave. That's no good. Hey, by the way, though, I mean, let's let's talk about some of these like high notes and maybe let's talk about things we like about the book. Yeah. But uh, here's let me say a thing I like about the book. I don't know about the slavery part. We can talk about that separately from this. But uh Aaron says, he's talking about like, because he gets hit on the head. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's Ged who said it. It's one of the two. They both get hit on the head. They get uh, knocked out. And he says, uh, he's got a cut on the back of his ear behind his ear that feels like a ripe split cucumber. He does say that. That's Ged. Yeah. 
perfect. No notes. <laughs> no, no one's ever described it. You can see it. You can feel it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's that's, both. I think he says that right after he frees, but doesn't yeah. arm the slaves or yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> He's on his KOTOR 2 shit. It is wild. Yeah. <laughs> Kraya versus Dead. Who, no yeah. matter who wins, we lose. Um, Exile. I, if I freed those slaves, <laughs> who's to say? <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, this well, is. Was a let, let me hit you with an even weirder one about please, that. Ged, Ged curses the slave master, right? Yeah. The overseer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he curses him by saying, "You'll never be able to speak again unless you have something worthwhile to say." What the fuck is that? What are you doing? We're supposed to be talking about stuff we like, Cameron. I know. I mean, you just you, you took me down I, the bad path. I, I don't know what to tell you. I did. Think I like cucumber. Um, That's cucumber. Fun. You're That's right. A so good it was on me. I was the one who brought us back to. Now mm. wait a second. What was the context of that? It was he won't <laughs> yeah. kill the slaves. Uh, mm. The, the slave. Oh, I'm sorry. He won't kill the slaves either. Which good job there. I guess. Yeah. But he will not. Um, uh, he, we would just be turning the slaves into into their masters, basically. If they, I gotta find the exact quote because the way this is talked about drove me up the wall. While you're looking is, for it, I please. do I do find the idea uh, extremely funny that Ged is that Ged has to like take that out to be like, now listen, you might think I would free these slaves, but I'm not doing it. That's not me. I'm it's, I'm the balance guy. That's the thing. He's the balance. I contemplate guy. the balance. Um, God, there, the yeah, bit where he shows up rules, which is like the fog starts glowing and stuff. Yeah, oh, yeah. Because well, he summons the fog, right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. that's his deal. He's a fog summoning guy. Kind of is the that is that's his, his level thing. zero cantrip. Yeah. You learn. This is the, the discussion about not freeing the slaves uh, is on page uh, two ninety four. Oh, way so, earlier. That's what that's what's gone wrong. Right, right, right. All the hair stuff is first. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So hair H A R E. There's not like weird <laughs> stuff with I mean, there is a little bit of weird hair jokes later, but <laughs> yeah, there are. Aaron's hair starts getting really long and spirally and hypnotizing all the other kids at school. <laughs> um where is it? You got it. It's a page, yeah, page two ninety four. So like, uh, uh, Aaron's been rescued by Ged, and they're like bedding down for the night, and then Aaron can't sleep, and he says, "My lord," he said, his mind veering uh, rapidly to another subject. Why sleep? Said Sparrowhawk with mild exasperation. I can't sleep, my lord. I wondered why you didn't free the other slaves. I did. I left none bound on that ship. But Egra's men had weapons. If you had found bound them, I, if I had bound them, they were but there were but six. The oarsmen were chained slaves like you. Egra and his men may be dead by now or chained by the others to be sold as slaves. But I left them free to fight or bargain. I am no slave taker. But you knew them to be evil men. Was I to join them, therefore, to let their acts rule my own? I will not make their choices for them, nor will I let them make mine for me. And then Aaron was silent, pondering this. At this moment, I was trying to unpack where we might be going, which might have been going back to, hey, Roke can guide, but we need a king to power, right? To do Mm -hmm, power. mm -hmm. And I was thinking, okay, maybe at the end of this book, what we're going to find is, is that Aaron is like, no, I am going to get rid of the the slavery in this world. I'm going to do the thing that 
that uh, Ged couldn't because Ged is powerful in this other way and it would mm-hmm. implicate yeah. him in a way that da 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 And we just do not ever wrap back around to those ideas, to the idea of what is it that makes us need a king to come back to what Michael keeps hitting. Mm-hmm. And I mean that even in the way of, let's think about this in, in metaphorical terms, even if we're not saying literally a king. What is it about, um, about Aaron and about the idea that, uh, there should be a sort of mortal, non-magical leader of all Earthsea, that is, or leaders of, of Earthsea, not wizards, that is useful for us. I know I'm, I didn't metaphorize wizards there at all, but like, th- you could do something with that, right? You could say, hey, listen, fundamentally, if we're going to get rid of slavery in this world, it can't be by magic. It has to be by you know, law and 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 mortal power, right? Political mm-hmm. or material power. It can't, we can't just magic slavery away. We can't just magic the ills of the world away. We need to reform the world in some way. We need to reshape the world in some way. But that's not where we go. And so it felt like there was this huge hanging idea with all of this stuff that gets set up early on that by the end, we are fully in the realm of the balance and, you know, it is good to live and, you know, it's scary to die, but we all must, having death means that life has da-da-da-da-da, like that that classic, you know, stuff. In fact, dying materially lets you reintegrate yourself with the world. You know, if you die physically, you become part of the sand and the waves and the sun and all this other stuff, right? Like, that's where the book goes. It leaves behind this whole interesting, the friction between the two of them never gets to resolve in this, in the the world building and setting sense, mm-hmm. only ever resolves in the they realign around ideas of life and death, and optimism and hope and etc. Right, lowercase o optimism. Well, this section really made me think. What and, and kind of got the the wheels spinning around this. What happened to Ged? Yeah, like yeah. in the thirty years in between the last time we we saw Ged blow up another religion. Mm-hmm. Because it was it was too oppressive, right? Well, he like, didn't do that. It did that to itself. It did that he to it. Evil defeats it. Or right, evil, yeah, right. uh-huh. you're a hundred percent right. Sure. And as but, you know, but, I think uh, it's bad booking. Anyway, right? Yeah, <laughs> go right. to the Discord to see you uh, define what bad booking is. But but like, no matter however you read that, right? Like, yes, him spitting just the wildest ideology about like individual freedom, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. like the whole time that was happening, they get they get to then, barter now. <laughs> that's the true freedom right we did get that update right yeah. yes that they that right. they get to come to Havnor Havnor now in the central islands and do a little trading wahoo <laughs> uh but 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 it just made me think like what happened to, to my guy Ged that he like became so like beaten down <laughs> I, I had the most cursed thought you know who would never do this to us Oh, his buddy, Severian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, can I tell you? I was I was outside in my lawn chair today reading this book. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Sunshine. It was a nice, like probably like sixty degrees out. Sun yeah. hitting me, and I was like two thirds of the way through this book and going, "Man, Ged's just not as cool as he used to be." And then I thought Severian would be doing some way weirder shit right now. 
Yeah. It would he would be doing some kind of <laughs> you, you've heard of the third way, right? Severian's got the fifth way. Yeah, you know what like, I mean? Like he's gonna do something else. He's yeah, gonna kill the dragon himself. To be right clear, now. Severian when I said Severian wouldn't do this, was I didn't mean he wouldn't change political ideologies. I mean he would have changed political ideologies like six times because a yes. new person entered the room and said something. And he would give us a huge justification for it yes. about why it was always true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which yeah. get to, we are just given this gap. Maybe it's like, maybe what we're supposed to take, and like, this is like perfectly acceptable to me, although it's like all inferential, is like, Ged, Ged got eaten up by the system, man. He's like, he's a, he's a middle manager I don't for, think this for the is, universe I don't over think here, this man. Is, I don't I, think this is what she's doing. It's I don't followed, think it is either, but it's yeah. acceptable to me if that is what she's doing. Well, but I don't, it, I don't, I don't think it is. Right. Well, and it's followed by, and I didn't read this, but it's followed by a like long rumination on the balance and the idea yeah, be yes. really seeming to be textually like to have done the the straight up straightforward act of heroism of being archmage ged who archmage ged who uh took over this boat and like threw all the slave owners overboard and freed the slaves uh that would be an imbalance right that wouldn't be a proper mm-hmm. uh application of his skill or his attention at this moment because what he needs to do and i think they end up having this conversation if not mm-hmm. now then in a later chapter right it is it's here it's three yeah. times in this book yeah yeah <laughs> It's like, we gotta, Aaron, I know you want us to do all this cool shit, but we got a quest. We gotta follow the quest, Aaron. (laughs) We gotta get in my boat. It's got a face on it. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read the section that you stopped. I love that that damn boat, by the way. The boat's great. Shout out to the look fairer, look far. Look far. Look far. No ER at the end. I don't know what I was doing. Do you see, Aaron? How an act is not, as young men think, like a rock that one picks up and throws and it hits or misses and that's the end of it. When that rock is lifted, the earth is lighter. The hand that bears it is heavier. When it's thrown, the circuits of the stars respond. And where it strikes or falls, the universe is changed. On every act, the balance of the whole depends. The winds and the seas, the powers of water and earth and light, all that these do and all that the beasts and the and green things do is well done and rightly done. All these act within equilibrium, from the hurricane and the great whale sounding to the fall of a dry leaf and the gnat's flight. All they do is done within the balance of the whole. But we, insofar as we have power over the world and over one another, we must learn to do what the leaf and the whale and the wind do of their own nature. We must learn to keep the balance. Having intelligence, we must not act in ignorance. Having choice, we must not act without responsibility. Who am I, though I have the power to do it, to punish and reward? playing with men's destinies. But then, the boy said, frowning at the stars, is the balance to be kept by doing nothing? Surely a man must act, even not knowing all the consequences of his act, if anything is to be done at all. Never fear. It is much easier for men to act than to refrain from acting. We will continue to do good and to do evil. But if there were a king over us all again, and he sought counsel of a mage, as in the days of old, and I were that mage... I would say to him, my Lord, do nothing because it is righteous or praiseworthy or noble to do so. Do nothing because it seems good to do. Do only which that you must do and which you cannot do in any other way. What the fuck are you talking about, Ged? (laughs) 
This is Ged's theory of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Like, yeah. truly. It, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, it's fucking... Yeah, what the... I, what what again, happened again? It only makes sense if what you're... If, if, it only makes sense if at the point at which you're writing this, you read the the phrase, uh, do you know do doing something that is quote righteous or praiseworthy or noble that righteous praiseworthy and noble things the, the category of action that falls under those things are actually all tinged with harm that there cannot yeah. be something yes. in the current moment that could mm-hmm. be righteous or praiseworthy or noble that is actually that those things alone can't make it good. Because mm. the the kind of possibility space, I know we're going to come to the whole possibility space, sorry. The possibility mm-hmm. space of action has been so corrupted or overturned or tilted that those are no longer compass directions by which you can act. Which again is like, damn, that's pessimistic, you know? Well, I I, and I think to add to that, right, I think that, that the way that the word judicious doesn't exist in this world because they don't. <laughs> They don't have judges, right? Like, sure. like, but I think that's what's being gotten to here, right? That like yes. good political leadership is to be judicious and fair. And yes, all those other things are to be noble to only is tinged the, with desire and selfishness. Or right. Whatever, right. Yes. And to only use power when you absolutely must, because to do it is to infringe on someone's freedom in some way. Right. Which, again, speaks right. to does speak to some of the anarchism. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but only yeah. insofar as. We must have a king. I guess we live in a world of kings, so I may as well write a book to, to help you be a good one. Yeah, if you can, like, you know, hit the perfect balance between being King Solomon and John Locke, <laughs> right? Which is exactly what's being described oh. here, right? Like, Lockean perfect order that is uh, determined by, like, people's capability and property, right? Like, yeah. also with the infinite wisdom of knowing when to act and when to, like, uh, put your thumb on the scales of reality, right? Which yeah. is like the Solomon maneuver. Yeah. If you can do those things, you're a good king. And look, here's the thing. Here's about fantasy. Aaron is that guy. Oh, yeah. He can do it, actually. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I just want to say, because I know, again, there's a listener out there who's like, you are, you are reducing the book by putting it in the world of the real political instead of letting it live in the realm of the metaphorical or the uh, personal, right? That this could be a lesson for all of us in our lives, that when we are in positions of power, then we should be judicious judicious in the way that Cameron just said. We should be cautious with all power that we have. We shouldn't do things just because we think we'll be patted on the head for them, et cetera, right? But that's because we think that they're good things. We should only move through the world in ways that, you know, uh, require us. We should only impact the world with power when it's absolutely required of us. I get that you can make those reads of this book. Unfortunately, we just read two other books, and the second one, the the one we just came off of, of, was really interested in thinking about political power and religious power and and the social. And so we've been trained to read in this way by these books, you know? (sighs) Anyway. Yeah. It's a, it's a real it's Aaron a weird is one. that dude to get back to what you were saying. Yeah, he can do it, and, and that's the thing. That's like you know, that's the the restoration and restoration fantasy that that it. This is like a real within the reality of this world. You can have a person who can do that, right? right. Which is th- that's the break with like any kind of like real world reading, right? Like obviously you can't. This isn't this. This is not how politics work in the real world, right? But you can have the fantasy of the ultimate judicious guy of uh, King Solomon, right? You know, mm-hmm. which is yeah uh, has that kind of you know fantastical mythological element to it, right? Um, but can I love you a and different can, angle? And you then. can just accept that it's real, and that like feels good, right? It feels good it, that there could be a guy who could do it. It doesn't, Karen. 
and this is my actual secondary well, then the problem. Fa- I don't, not to me in like the real world. No, but no, that's no, how no, no. That's not what works, I mean. Right? No, no, that's what I mean. So, so let me quote an all-time important text here. This is mm-hmm. Twitter user head falls off me. <laughs> I am fundamentally opposed to the monarchy and the church is ruling powers. History is a record of their atrocities. My therapist, that's fair. Me, but I love it when the chosen king reclaims his divine sword and leads his army in glorious battle. My therapist, who doesn't? I gotta, I gotta leave this book being like, I love it when the chosen king reclaims his divine sword and leads his army in glorious battle. I gotta, you gotta bring me in on that. It has to feel sick when Aaron finally draws the sword. Yeah, it, it definitely doesn't. And it definitely it doesn't. actually doesn't feel like anything at all. It doesn't yeah. feel like anything at all. I don't even think you can get a lot. I, I, I would love to hear from people who read this at the appropriate age because, you know, I didn't, right? So, that, you know, kind of a historical gap for me here. But I don't think I could read this to like a 12-year-old now and then be hyped for the end of this book. Because it does. It actually does some Le Guin stuff, right? Where yeah. like it, it, it involutes at the end. And you get like this weird philosophical conversation and a dragon jumps on a guy, right? Like, like it, that moment. It, it does not I do like that dragon him. showing up, but Oh, of course that's super cool. Yeah. And you know, Aaron lops the dude's head off and then it heals it again. Heals. And that Ged's got to use his magic. Like it's all jumbled. It yeah. doesn't work the way that like the restoration fantasy theoretically does. No towers explode. That's right? what I mean. Yeah. It's like, he doesn't ascend to the, the, the princehood in a way or the king, the kinghood, whatever in order in a way that, is you know spectacular and compelling and uh, i i don't to, to use another phrase, <laughs> phrase uh i don't give into astonishment i almost wish i did i wish there was something here in the in this book that made me give into astonishment because then i have like a cool fun time you know yeah um, mm-hmm. and i'm not i and didn't it, have a it, terrible it, time reading this book there's a lot in here that we can get to that i think is fun but yeah i thought it was fun we, we, we just flat. spend about an hour and 15 minutes talking about all the stuff that doesn't work yeah that's why yeah. that's, okay. that's the, the fun stuff to talk about sometimes yeah but yeah, I think that's I but I think that's a really good point, which is like the whole last two chapters and then it ends on the weird little parable thing. They're not even parable, but like the competing narratives thing that we talked about before, which is like we don't really know how these two, you know, Aaron and Ged, we don't really know how they ended, but it wasn't good, you know, or, or not in the suturing way you want it where everything kind of fits together. Uh, there, there's no Merlin with the hand on the shoulder. That's exactly right. He's not He's not the court magician. He doesn't get to, to retire mm-hmm. into uh, the kind of elder statesman status where even though he's he's lost his magic or says he's lost his magic, he gets to be the the you know kindly wizard who advises him in in mm-hmm. towards towards good leadership or, or sovereignty or something right i like that ged kind of pulls like a modern day retiree maneuver where he's like i'm 72 and i need to play pickleball every day for two and a half hours <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. and he just like blows his knees out yeah <laughs> uh and he's like well i guess i'm done sorry mountain time i need to know what side of this you're on um, does anybody remember what the lore of of the undead magic is called? Um, oh, it's not uh, Perth. It's not Perth. It's not. It's not it's a p word, right? It's another. It is another p word. Is it There's called? Kind of, I, I believe it's actually. It's weird. I think that it is the lore of. Yeah, it's the lore of Palm, right? Yeah, and then there's the island of Palm, uh-huh, and yeah. then the mountains in the dried lands. Are not pawn, but are pain. Pain. It's a capital I. It's always been a capital I. <laughs> the L 
is you could read the lore of okay, so the necromantic power uh-huh. kind of like yeah. a print error. It's not, but like in but a it has world the feel where of a print error. It, it has for me, it has the feeling of there's power in runes and in mm-hmm. words. Mm-hmm. And so you've made this place called Palm, but a, a lowercase L could be a capital I. And so when you go into the drylands, the mountains at their very end, and the place of power where, where it is seeking, you know, seeping into the real world. Is are the mountains of pain, and I think that's kind of fun. If you set up that magic words or that words are powerful, that little typographic pun it gets me. So the I got the pun, but for a long time I was unsure if it wasn't a printer error. I was like, <laughs> man, did they like OCR this and just like oh, half sure. the time this is supposed to be palm, but it's coming out as pain, it's or it's pain. supposed to be pain, it's coming out as palm. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think that's cool. That's all. Yeah. I didn't even pick that up. I'll be honest with you. It's fun. Yeah, yeah it's cool. It's yeah. good. What else is good? Michael, what's good? Uh, Let me see. I already talked about... Oh, I like the fact that we got old Ged. Um, I love the thing that happens when Orm Imbar uh, falls on, on Corn Cobb. Yeah. And then like there's like this and then they like rolls over or whatever. There's just like this like horrible little thing that just starts scrabbling away. I love that. I love the yeah. way that that's described, right? The, the evil fact that wizard his- Cobb is is crushed by a dragon who he's mm-hmm. who has been stabbed is dying at this point. Um but is he can't die. He's immortal, but that doesn't mean that his bones don't crack and break and that his body doesn't flatten. He turns into like a Roger Rabbit situation, except mm-hmm. like he, gets, he also gets burned at the same time. He does. Yes. Yeah. It's like a little like a little uh, flattened ash mummy or something yeah. like scrabbling across the beach. I, you yeah, know, the same situation, though, it is teased early um, is they say early on, like the the. Uh, the gray mage of pawn once summoned all of the spirits of the heroes and mages to counsel the Lord of mm-hmm. pawn. And then later we get the literal Aerith Akbay like revenant has been summoned to defend mm-hmm. the doorway mm-hmm. into the, the little whale or the dragon bone hut where Cobb lives. Um, and like that moment rips the, the like Aerith Akbay yeah. is here in all the destroyed bronze armor from a previous era from the era of, of heroes. That was great. Yeah. Yeah, with no sword. With no sword. Yeah. Because the sword's at the top of the yeah. of the tower. And they describe his like armor as being like hatcheted. You know? Yeah. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, I'm looking at my notes and I do have a note here. Was Cobb really his name? That was like five chapters in, so I like that. <laughs> I like that it, um and I wish they was more done with it. That as you summarized, Ged fucked up again. Ged yeah. in a moment yeah. of peak you know, rubs cops face in it and says, Oh, you make some smack, some smack, make some smoke the whole pack, you know? Oh, you want to guess with dead mat death magic. Well, guess what, buddy? We're going to the death world. And that blows up on him. You know that I like, I wish we did more of that. I wish at the end of it, Cobb had been, had lorded that old. He does, I guess a little bit. He does a little bit. Yeah, he does. Yeah. He he basically says you, you know, it's a super villain origin story, right? It's like you, you showed me how laser beam eyes work. And now I put laser beam eyes all over my whole body. That's why this feels like Power Rangers the movie. Or like any (laughs) anime movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where there's like any of like the Dragon Ball Z movies or the Cowboy Beehive movie. Right. Do you know what I mean? Where there's like a one-off, you know, villain of the week, but they're treated like they're like hot shit. 
Right, because it has to carry a movie. <laughs> it has to carry a movie, but it, but also it can't reach into the main series. <laughs> so right. they have to. It has to be something that can be resolvable. Um, there's some of that energy here. Yeah, it, it's a real Joker Batman. Right? It is. It is. It is. Yeah. No, like, sorry, uh, it's not you know, a Joker Batman. This is what I'm saying, Cameron. I'm well, saying, like a, but it's like a Batman '89 where he lets him fall into the into the stuff. Right? It is that, but that's not the energy I'm yeah. talking about. Mm, I'm talking about how. It's you know what it is? It's a mask of the phantasm. There oh, we go. Which I like uh, mask I, of the I, phantasm. I, I see what you're saying. But you see what I mean? There's like mm-hmm. a it's off the main path of mm-hmm. of the work, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like a Lex Luthor is what you're saying. No, I'm not saying Lex Luthor. Oh, you're not. Oh, it's not. I see. <sighs> Hold fine. on. Let me, it's fine. let me try it's to think fine. Of, it's fine. It's fine. Let me try to think. You're just not an anime like, person, clearly. Yeah. Is it like is it like a... I mean, I'm trying really hard. Is it like like a Freddy Krueger? Yeah, it's like a Freddy Krueger. It's <laughs> okay. just like a Freddy Krueger. Yeah, and the way he's like talking to people in dreams, exactly. <laughs> kind of. You know? <laughs> yeah. he's got, he is kind of Freddy Krueger. Yeah. I like when Sparrowhawk uses uh, Vetch's avert when he's trying to make sure that the woman of the, the dies doesn't curse him and Aaron. He goes, avert, which is something that Vetch used to do. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. this. That's great. Shout outs. Uh, I, here, I like a thing that's sad. Me too. Um. What what is the lady's name from the the previous book? I'm blanking on her name. Tanar. 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 She did she did end up getting called the White Lady. Yeah. Did you notice that? Yeah. Because because Ged's like only seven people know my name, and then the book lists all of them. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's like she's the White Lady of Gaunt now. Yeah. Uh-huh. One of my first notes, you know, I, I, one is there's a lot that we could talk about with regard to Aaron in relation to Tanar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but also more broadly, there is this, when I first noticed was, I keep, I keep thinking, what did Ged see in Aaron that he did not see in Tanar? And the answer is many things, but also it might be that he wasn't Archmage yet and he wasn't looking to retire and turn things over to the next yeah. generation. And Earthsea might be a world where only Aaron, a prince, could do the things that Ged wants him to. But again, how sad that in mm-hmm. the fantasy story, and again, I, I think this is like when writing yeah. in a context. This isn't, yeah. I'm not, uh, I'm and not saying. And it's about blood and genealogy, right? It like, is. He Aaron only matters because you know he's basically the the descendant of um, not Mordred, <laughs> not Morid. Mordred, but it's the person who Morid. marries Altharin, right? Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. So so it's kind of like um, uh, Paris, right? From yeah, right from Troy. Right, right. Is the idea. Sure. Like the big hero, one of the big heroes, right? I got a really good one that I really like. Mm-hmm. Here, little little world detail, which is we've learned something very important for our third or fourth Dragon Lord movie. Okay, you pick up on this. There's a Dragon Lord rival. There's a new lord in town over <laughs> on page two seventy five. That's right, folks. The Fire Lord is here. The Fire Lord <laughs> who sought to undo the darkness and stop the sun at noon was a great mage. This is this is. Yeah, he stood on the sun, right? Isn't that what he tried Did to he do? Stand on the sun. I missed. I that. think so. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure, right? Yeah, I don't have that here. I don't see that here, but I believe. Oh, you, you know what? Hold on, that might be corrected here. I'm 95 percent sure that is in my because I had to bounce it back and forth when I was outdoors. I was reading not the tome, but I was back in the tome oh. indoors. Look, I had both what? side by side. I've read no. Both. Listen, if you found a little a little difference here. The Fire Lord. Maybe I just misread it the last time. What Maybe it was so hot in your life that you felt like 
It was. It was like yeah. it was a crisp sixty-two today. <laughs> this is in chapter. This is not all in chapter. Two, oh no, right? yeah, I think you're right. You're right. Let's see here. Uh, I should finish. Re- I should have kept reading. Even Aerith Akbay could scarcely defeat him. The enemy of Morid was another such. Now that's a different person. Where's the bit about the sparkweed? <laughs> was it in there? Where I have that written down somewhere. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. Anyway, sparkweed. You don't remember the sparkweed? I, I think you got a different copy of the book. Y'all had spark in that sparkweed? I don't think I had sparkweed. It's in here somewhere. Uh, I will tell you, I will admit something here. I read about half of this in the tome, and I read a mix of the rest in uh, EPUB and uh, and like uh, audiobook format. How's the audiobook? I don't like it very much, honestly. What's bad about it? Um... I don't like the pronunciation on some of the stuff from the guy. And it's this like dour British guy, which is like, I think that's probably what people want to be clear. Um, it's just not what I want, you know? Sparrowhawk. Yeah, it's like that. You're like, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not feeling it. I'll be honest. Damn it. Is, Are there this, any big maneuvers? In, is this while they're in Hort Town? The oh, hey, what's, what's up with Aaron getting his, his true name? What do y'all think about that? What do you mean getting it? Right, he doesn't doesn't Ged reveal it? Am I making that Ged, up? Ged reveals it, but uh, somehow uh, Aaron already knows it because Ged does the thing that Ged always does, which he actually oh, that's uses right. That's right. Right. the right. common version of his true name, like in early conversation. Because what is it? Is it a mm. is it a yew tree or something? It's some type of tree is the word that is his true name, which is. Lebanon uh, and right. and something and then like in their early conversations Ged says to him it's like oh you'll be as tall as a yew tree or something and there's a moment where Aaron is very uh, surprised because he's like whoa he like that's he doesn't know it he's that he's the meme of the guy standing in the corner except it's not a party it's just you know Archmage Sparrowhawk over on the other side and he's like he doesn't know that yew tree is my true name I figured out what happened with Sparkweed and the Fire Lord. Okay. I, when Aaron sits down at the fountain at the beginning of this book, I'm like, oh, is that the fountain from the beginning of the book? And I, and also when uh, Aaron talks to, uh, what's the, what's the other kid's name at the beginning of this book? Who I thought would be a character and then was kind of just in that. Oh, adventure. man, that kid who just lies to him. Yeah, that kid who just like, lies to him. repeatedly. Oh, my God. he gets God. tired of lying because yeah. he lies so much. That yeah. dude fucking ran. That, guy's, yeah. that guy rules. Um, yeah. But I was like, oh, is this going to be a rerun of Ged and Jasper? So I went back mm-hmm. and reread that section. And here is a thing from that. This is the, that's the imminent grove. We can't come there yet. In the hot sunlit pastures, yellow flowers bloomed. Sparkweed, said Jasper. They grow where the wind dropped the ashes of burning Ilion, where Aerith Akbay defended the inward isles from the Fire Lord. He blew on a withered flower head, and the seed shaken loose went up on the wind like sparks of fire in the sun. So we read that two books ago. That's what happened, Cameron, is we read about <laughs> the Fire Lord two books ago, and we just forgot about it. Yeah. And Sparkweed. Shit. And about Sparkweed. There's a lot going on in that first book. There's a lot going on in that first book. Well, let me tell you, I've I've found it in, in the other copy. No, oh. stop in the sun at noon. I just read that as stand on the sun at noon, which is way cooler. I got <laughs> to be honest, talking about anime earlier, right? Yeah, like that's yeah. that's way cooler. Yeah, standing on the sun. Uh, anyway, I don't know what I thought here. that meant either, but I I just thought it was a cool image predicting Smash Mouth. 
I mean, that's the thing. I feel like when we were reading the first book. <laughs> well, he would walk. That's actually part of the issue. You don't want to burn your feet. You got to keep, keep moving. Yeah, exactly. Um, when we read the first book, if you had told me that in that first book, there was a line about someone standing on the sun, I'd be like, damn, yeah, that sounds like the sort of stuff that could happen here. Now that I've read this third book, I don't believe that that's the world we live in. And that's fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's that brief uh, admission that where did this happen? There's like life on other planets. I think Ged talks about that. There's aliens? I missed this. Yeah. He he mentions like, I, the dang I think it's when he's going off. I think I had this in my notes. Did I? Yeah. Uh, it's like 298. What is he going on about? He says that there are worlds beyond the world. And he talks about like the gulf of space and stuff. Cool. <laughs> well, you know, there there is a... Um, you know, I don't know if it it gets to the level of industrial complex, but there are certainly people who like want to suture Earthsea to uh, the 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 Le Guin science fiction books, the Hainish oh, cycle. Sure. Yeah. 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 I mm-hmm. see. Yeah. I have no oh, no. I have an opinion on that. I don't think you should do that. But no. beyond intricately, I don't have an opinion on that. <laughs> um. Trying to think of other stuff uh, that that is interesting. I I like the thing that happens when they are, um, or when Aaron is sold into into slavery. That that piece, because they're like, in essentially, and uh, you know, they're watching a dude take opium, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Ged is like a former focusing. wizard. Yes. Yeah. Like kind of doing the dream space, right? Mm-hmm. And Ged's like using that as like um, a honing or like a method, you know, to kind of get in, try to figure out what's going on. They're kind of doing the mystery of like what's happening to the world. Mm-hmm. And these dudes like break in, basically. And what what ends up happening is that Aaron like runs down the street um, in order to lead them away. Yeah. Because he thinks something yeah. bad's going to happen to Ged, but he doesn't know that he's actually like the prize, right? He's right. the thing who because they they want to capture him and sell him into slavery. And I like that. I there, There's something... I, he like for, grabs for, their, like, they've looted the room or whatever on top right, of yeah. trying to c- c- knock out Ged and him. And he like grabs the loot and begins running through the streets and like throwing it to try to like get their attention and get them to chase him away from Ged. Because to him... Ged is the important one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I, I like that there for a book about a chosen king who's like good and moral and everything. I actually don't think there are a lot of places in this book where Aaron gets to like demonstrate his capabilities. There's a lot of him being unsure and overcoming that, but there's not a lot of him showing what kind of person he is. And this is a place where he shows what kind of person he is. Hmm. Where he's, he's like trying to. I don't know, be charitable no, toward right. Ged, as opposed to like the billion times later where he's like mad at Ged for doing something to him. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. mad at Ged a lot. And and um yeah, I it doesn't have that sort of uh it, there's a lot of vignettes in this book, but the vignettes are not sh- set up to be tests of Aaron's capability or mm-hmm. morality. It's rare that it's like, and then Aaron, you know, showed that he da 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 da. Or even that he learned something and took something away from it often. It's not that type of vignette. Um, He does learn that it's perfectly normal for the Archmage to be a former goat herd. He does. Because that's one of his first thoughts at the very beginning of the book where, I mean, and that's, you know, I thought we were going to get more of that, honestly. Uh, But really, we don't. We just get the beginning where he, I think he's hearing from that guy who's showing him around, maybe. 
that uh, Ged like grew up on Gaunt, which is an island of goat herds. And he's like, surely that's impossible. How could how could the archmage, the the mage yeah. of all mages, how could he possibly have been a goat herd at one point? And then he like falls in love with Ged the first time I mean, he meets him, and from that it's point as on, clear as possible. Yeah. Like those are the words used, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 And then, I mean, there's the bit where they're like, where he's like, um, uh, thinking about his future. He's down bad. He's like, I would rather sweep his room than be a prince in Enlid. Yet I would stay near him even if he lost power and his art. Like he is, he is a Ged guy from here on at that point of the book. Uh, there, you know, which I think we could put in conversation with Tanar in, in, um, the last book, which names uh, the name of which I keep forgetting uh, uh, of uh, the tombs of Adelon, tombs of Adelon yeah. right? Where it's like, there is something about being young and looking at a cool wizard where you go, damn, I I'm having feelings for the first time in my life. I mean, they even <laughs> set up specifically that, that, um, Aaron has had, and they mean this, uh, I say, I keep saying they thinking about this as like a, a collective, uh, work, you know, like a film mm-hmm, or something. Mm-hmm. She says a number of times, that or, or there's a really clear place where she says it that like Aaron has had sorts of dalliances, which she means broadly, not just romantic dalliances, but like dalliances of caring about things in the world, right? Um, uh, about about wanting to like succeed at things. But now that he's on this quest, he's begun this quest. This is the first time Aaron has really given himself to a thing, you know, and and given himself to a commitment to succeed at something. Um, and caught up in there is this crush on on Ged, who is, you know, I don't know, 32 years his senior or something, you know, um, mm-hmm. which which is which is, I, I you know, I, I this book does not ever Ged does not care. That is not what Ged is doing. Ged is not interested in this boy in this way at all. There's there's no um, there's not nothing like that ever kind of even bubbles up. In fact, I think the only thing that happens is that Ged is like, listen, I got to tell you, I, I've been kind of using your love towards me to my ends, you know, um, which, which I think is interesting, but it's, it's funny that it came up again. And this is now a recurring thing for Ged is that young people see the cool wizard and fall in love. Well, I was wondering, and this again, doesn't come through as much as I think I wished it were wished it did uh i was thinking of aaron in those moments as being something like a proxy for the reader right Mm. right like uh and and here this is how i kind of understand maybe why this character is not just tanara again like why why did we reintroduce someone new and not go back to her because i think there's some sort of assumption even here that leguin might be making about who the audience is for fantasy literature of this type um of like the the young boy who really admires the wizard or like the figure of the wizard, right? This this figure of wonder and power, and at the same time, uh, is going to miss the point that it means something that someone can ascend to that place of honor from being a goat herd, right? Uh, right, and that uh, you know the 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 love that. Aaron feels for Ged is often kind of the uh, uh, almost knee-jerk reflexive love of the young reader for like a protagonist character, yeah, yeah. right? And and part of this book is not so much about him learning not to love Ged, but to like temper that love or to figure out like how to make it productive, right? How to make it like a useful um, admiration and like a useful affection and uh, 
how to not let that be the thing also that rules his life. Uh, being able to turn around and like do the thing that he actually needs to do with the relationship with Ged being kind of a a, a prop for that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I like Ged adopting this accent and calling Aaron Nevy. <laughs> yes. As they go into Hort Town and he pretends to be a from Aaron's or place. Where he has to do like a sorry to bother you at Hort Town. Uh, yeah, he has to do a yeah. sorry to bother you and put on a different voice. Yeah. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. put on a different, yep. Mm-hmm. I like the, it was like the mirror headed lady, the mirror. How yeah. is she described? Yeah, she's a, uh, I she I guess she's like a low level witch, right? Like she can do some. She used to be able she to do used some to. real magic, yeah, yeah. But she also does a bunch of other stuff with mirrors and and like um, uh, lights and things like that too. Yeah, she yeah. calls she's up this like goldfish. The, what she calls up a some sort of goldfish creature? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Because, well, she puts the she puts the two mirrors beside one another. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I got you. I yeah. see. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Super yeah. Nice. But yeah, it's really it's uh yeah that's great. I like that she's a character that because we've talked a few times before about magic in this world being kind of like just a tool, right? Like mm-hmm. lots of people can do it. Not everyone's a wizard, but lots of people do it. And this is one of the few times we've seen it being used for entertainment. Yeah, because that's what she used to do. Yeah, you know? she used to be, now she's not. She doesn't do that anymore. Yeah. but we just haven't seen that all that often in this world. And it feels like the you know the quote from Le Guin that goes around every now and again about um, wanting there to be free pickles on every corner at, uh-huh. in the dispossessed, uh-huh. and not being able to fit that into the book. <laughs> you know, not being able to put that anywhere. This feels like a oh, I gotta like actually like we gotta talk about entertainment in Earthsea. Let's yeah. get that in there. Yeah, because this woman could have been anything, right? Right, um, but instead she's it, someone who yeah. used to do like fun fire tricks and stuff out in the streets using magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's I, one, of the, I, one of the better drawn characters. You know, I don't specifically love the stuff in Hort Town around how like it has it has fallen under bad dens. governance. You don't like the opium dens. I don't like the opium <laughs> dens. I mean, you know, there's a version of this. If we, the slaver opium dens. I don't, don't like, like the that? slaver opium dens. I. It's just Shanghai, right? It like is. That's, it, yeah. it is the 19th century imaginary of what Shanghai is. It is yeah. that. Well, and this is the thing is, if she was writing this in 1988, and it was, and it was about crack, the crack epidemic, and the oh, government's, yes. you know, da 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 da. Uh, then maybe we have we could get somewhere. Though I actually don't know that I trust her to do that. Right I d- I don't think you know if what? we just took the pure text as it is, it's so judgmental and bad. It's so I read bad. this. I, I just to be honest. I I read this. The, uh-huh. the, I read all the way through Hort Town, and then I like got on my phone. I was like, when did this come out? Because I thought <laughs> yeah. it might have been yeah about no, it's crack. Bad. And I was like, I was like, no one talks about this. But no, I was like, okay, it's the early seventies. She's talking about different. But again, things, like, it's but. especially bad because it keeps coming back to personal responsibility type shit from Ged. Uh-huh. You know, um, I mean, it kind of comes back to personal responsibility shit for her. I, I know, I know, I know. You know, I mean, I'm not I'm, again, I'm not trying to bang the drum too much, but like it's it, the alignment between her and Ged or is pretty, pretty wild on yeah. this issue. Mm-hmm. Some of those who used to rule the city had died and some had resigned and some had been assassinated. Various chiefs lorded over it. Over various quarters of the city, the harbor guardsmen ran the port and lined their pockets and so on. She's very, you know, she does think that government has failed these people, you know. Um, uh, so it's not fully on them, but it, 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 the way there's a, there's a, uh, a, a, sometimes you can deploy your talent uh, in a way where you reveal your target. <laughs> um, Look, if you don't have a king, 
people just they get addicted to fantasy opium. To I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. yeah. The uh, I, what I do like about this, like, let me say the thing I like a lot about Horttown, which has nothing to do with what's actually in Horttown. What I love is that this book, the first place they go is Horttown, which is the place that Ged avoids. Right when he's uh, going to uh, to Roke initially, you're right? right? Yeah, they're they're they That's are fun. going toward Roke, and then the you know they can't control the the wind or whatever, and so they're like, ah, we're gonna have to take you to Hort Town. And Ged has this flash, and he's like, wait a minute, they take slaves in Hort Town of young men. I'm not going to Hort Town. <laughs> and he like you know controls the wind and weather to to get himself to Roke. And then what's the thing you gotta do when you're old? You gotta go back. Everyone's gotta go through Hort Town eventually yeah. in life. Yeah. I like that a lot. I like the structure of having to pass through Hort Town. Not a lot's done with it. Although yeah. I guess the, the prophecy is fulfilled in that they do enslave young men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um You're telling I, me as an archmage you couldn't figure that shit out? I know. You couldn't work on some anti slaving policy on the islands? No, because they're not they're they don't rule in that way for some reason. <sighs> yeah, I guess that's true. Um the this is the Jedi Council again. We I can't do this. I can't do this on two podcasts. <laughs> yeah, no. Go more civilized I'm not age. asking you to. I accept everything. I'm on your side. I okay. I just I'm I, with you. I just you know. <laughs> um, I think I do. I think I do like is at least for a little while. I think maybe overseas it's welcome. But the core premise of people are losing magic, and you start to like encounter people who used to have magic and don't anymore. And then there is this sort of insidious thought that enters people's minds of like. Well, did they ever do magic really anyway? Wasn't it all just kind of trickery? Wasn't it really just, mm-hmm. we all believed in magic, but, eh, you know, the uh, master hand can still do his works, but that's because it's all just, it's all just ledger domain. It's all just, it's all just tricks anyway and illusions. In fact, and they all get obsessed with this core question, which is like, none of them have ever been able to like stop death and they can't do that. Are they even really wizards? Why do we care so much about these people who can't even prevent death? Which kind of brings us back to that big failure of Ged in Earthsea, in Wizard of Earthsea, with the boy in the the Ninety Isles, you know, and like mm-hmm. being unable to prevent the death of of his buddy's kid, you know. Um, I, the idea that that ends up being like the one true question in philosophy in this world is like, are they even powerful if they can't stop death? And mm-hmm. is is it not the case that in in being unable to do that? They are. Um, they shouldn't be worthy of praise. And then deeper, the that question and that desire to overcome death uh, is what drives all of the different, you know, all of the powerful people, all of the ones who can work work wizardry, work magic, into losing their magic. Because I guess what we eventually learn is um, people are trading that these wizards are trading away their power and their name for supposedly for immortality. Right, mm. except that this is a very pale immortality. This is a very mm-hmm. dull and dry and gray immortality um, uh, that is aimless and lifeless and joyless. And I think that that part of it really works in a few key scenes. And I do think it overstays its welcome by the end in terms of like we kind of get multiple vignettes in which someone who used to be a wizard is shown to be and is written to be quote unquote mad, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think it, it kind of works the first time and then it, it still kind of works the second time and it, it, the cutaway where we go see the, the other wizards looking into the cool crystal and it like one of them sees the end, the beginning of the earth and one of them sees the end of it, you know, all that stuff kind of hits. Uh, but by the very, but I'd say by, um, what is the weirdo's name <laughs> comes with them on the boat? 
It's not sloppy, oh. but it's something like <laughs> sloppy. Uh, sure, sloppy. Well, yeah, it's sloppy. Yeah, but it's sloppy. sloppy. It's on the boat. I'm like, I'm good. We kind of got it by now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I, that, I think that is the weakness of the because the structure of this novel is the same as a Wizard of Earthsea in the sense of it's like a couple chapters is set up and then like each chapter is its own kind of big vignette, mm-hmm. big piece. And then we get like three chapters at the end that kind of get the whole thing together. And I think the a real structural weakness in the book is that the three or four kind of big pieces we get in the middle, they all get their own chapter. They all end up feeling really samey, except yeah. for the people on the raft, because they're kind of unified by this like madness narrative, right? Like once you lose magic, you you kind of go off the map kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of just feels like the same thing happening over and over again until the last one, which which is generally pretty cool. I think the like anthropological gaze of all this is kind of like, all right, I get yeah. it. But we get like, you know, th- these people live on rafts. They they don't have an island, unlike everyone else on Earthsea. Yeah. They don't go to the island. They just live here. There's like super waves out here. It's like that planet on Interstellar, right? Where there's just <laughs> massive like Earth waves that are going everywhere. I love that they say uh, that, you know, it's again, very anthropological, right? But they're metaphors. They don't live on an island, so they don't have a metaphor for a mountain. So they're like, yeah, yeah sometimes the waves are so big, it's like a thunderhead. Uh, you know, it's like the clouds. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, they don't have mountains, so that's what mm-hmm. they would say. Yeah, they don't know what I'll- sparrowhawk means. They're like, ah, okay, <laughs> sparrowhawk. Like, I know how to say it. I don't know what that means. I don't have an Here's- image of a bird in my head. Yeah, just some words. Yeah. I like the the stuff about the babies when they because the leash if you babies? live on a raft, you gotta like tie your babies yes, down. That's they got fun. little leashes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like babies on leashes, and you gotta like look after them. I I liked all that that stuff about those people. I thought that was really an interesting little group. Aaron gets gets, um, gets to go swimming and gets like playfully teased for swimming weird. <laughs> oh, you swim oh, yeah, like a they fish have, like, on a many hook, different weirdo. You know, <laughs> right, right. Because we're like swim like a seal. Now yeah. swim like a dolphin. They have like yeah. these, these because for them this is their whole life. Right? Yeah. They, they just swim. Yeah, that's their whole deal. And so they they have a bunch of they have a pretty fine gradation for it, which is fun, but also feels like the you know fifty words for snow kind of thing, right? It, it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Uh huh. Right. It's like it's a both and. It's on one hand it comes from a real like impulse. Human beings really do this thing, but also. And again, this it is, is it is the gaze the narrative on we it. tell. Yeah, right. it is a narrative right. we tell, and and again, like part of it is a, I found that quote that I tried to reference earlier. Uh, uh, Ged says um, this, so this is like the they're being allowed to stay here basically to heal up and stuff like that, you know. And there's like a debate around, ooh, should should we let them? So. When they run into these people, it is after they've kind of come under attack from some some randos on one of these islands. Like someone just starts throwing spears at them, and Ged mm-hmm. gets hit by it, and Ged is like hurt really bad. And uh, at this point, Aaron is like running out of faith, and you know he's worried that they're not going to make it. And and then it turns out, oh wow, we bumped into these like the cool people uh, in the in the open sea, uh, whose uh, the names of which I've written down somewhere. But I have too many notes on this one. I don't know why I took all, all these notes. Um, but um, uh, there was a debate from the open sea people about whether they should deal with these people from the land because to do it is kind of dangerous, right? You know, uh, and he he did it. And so I've now lost my stupid innocence line. Where the fuck did it just go? Here it is. Um, 
The mage thanked him, and the chief got up, slight and stiff as a heron, and left them alone together. Quote, In innocence, there is no strength against evil, said Sparrowhawk a little wryly, but there is strength in it for good. We shall stay with them a while, I think, until I'm cured of this weakness. And that is like the most, oh, these people are outside of time. These people don't live in our bad modern world, and they're innocent. They're untouched by that. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, we're not going to find our solution here. We can't beat evil with this. Well, we can recharge our batteries, you know? We can reconnect to the earth a little bit. Um, And it's kind of a spa, people. Yeah. Here with the beautiful nomads. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of a bummer. But I do like them. They're fun. And and you get the other half of the anthropological gaze, right? Which is during Mm -hmm. the, they stay for the longest uh, day, the long dance or whatever, which is is the shortest night of the year. Everybody, Mm -hmm. and everybody celebrates this across the entire, all of Earthsea. You know, early on, it's one of the things that, um, that Aaron connects to them with is like, oh, you guys do a dance on on the solstice? Like, guess what? Me too. I also we also do that. We sing different songs, but but we all do that. We're all unified in this way, which is like the other thing that you get from the anthropological perspective a lot is like, mm-hmm. oh, here are the things that unite us all as a people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and a cool moment where the singer loses loses his songs, but Aaron still has his, you know? That's an Aaron moment, I guess. Sort of thank God that kid was around uh, to save him, huh? Fuck. Thank God that one true king, even yeah. even the yeah. nomads even in the, the nomads. in the desert. I mean, uh, I uh, mean the people <laughs> on the ocean. Even even they need uh, a, a god. King. I mean, a, a king. Yeah, I mean, a king. Uh-huh. yeah. Mm-hmm. I did wonder throughout this whole point, this whole part of the book. I was like, is Aaron going to end up marrying a nomad girl, a a, a water nomad mm. girl, to unite the peoples? Is that what was that what we're going to do? Because mm. that's what this version of you know that's the most yeah. traditional version of this, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's that that's that's the 19th century novel version of that. Yeah. No, instead a dragon appears and uh, sweeps them off their feet to the uh, end of the book. <laughs> that dragon swept me off my feet. That dragon has like some orm orm embar has yeah, like some oh, cool I orm embar orm embar is rad as hell. <laughs> yeah. I, I the the part I really like about the dragon stuff because Orm Imbar, I mean that really is the end of the book, right? Orm Imbar yeah. delivers them nearly right to the end of everything. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of pausing along the way, but really, it's like he delivers travel, them to the evil wizard. They travel through the dragons run, which is like all yeah. the islands of the yeah. dragons, and you learn about the oldest of old dragons. And there's that one cave that's like they're hearing different things from it. You know, like one of them's yeah, hearing. Neat. Like I'm yeah, not mad at yeah, it. It just you know it does kind of go. It, go it, is it's in, just kind it's of some spacer before yeah. we get to the part yeah. which is like here's the evil wizard, yeah. and then the dragon dies. There's some cool stuff there. Um, I like that the evil wizard's um, sword slash cane. It's a little unclear what it is, right? It's like covered in runes, and so that's what's able to kill the dragon. Yeah. But at the end, after they do all the stuff, right, and they're getting the dragon to fly them back. To the you know the to the town in the different middle. Different dragon, yeah. Different dragon, yeah. different dragon. Who does it? The more more ancient and even more non-binary dragon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That the book really takes its time out to explain that to us. Yeah, it's and, like uh, for uh, reasons uh, that are unclear. Right. Aaron is like, wow. Like all the other dragons I've seen, I had some sense of their gender, but not this one. Wizened. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, but what's, it's so funny to me because it's like on the island of blah, blah, the dragon flew over and they celebrated because yeah. like, damn, it's a dragon on the island of blah, blah. 
So someone else did something else on the 99 I Isles. Love this. They fucking freaked out. <laughs> They're like, the Archmage is dead and the dragons have forsaken their promise. <laughs> oh, it's that. so funny. I love it. They're like, we're the one people. And we're like really concerned. <laughs> oh, no. It's really good. It's, really it's, good. it's extremely good. That That is the whole book is worth reading for that thing. Yeah. Um, so if you're on the fence, Sorry, <laughs> you know, but turning the page and getting to that, I was like, this is good. Yeah, this is like the ultimate go back and I, clean up the narrative thread. This is a real the final three chapters might have hit if not for the middle five chapters yeah. thing for me. Mm-hmm. I think from the moment there's a moment in the raft people, the raft zone in the open seas um, where uh, Aaron and and Ged finally kind of like come to terms again. Um, and, uh, Aaron says, you know, or, or Ged tells Aaron that like, he's always been strong or whatever, you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. like, well, that kind of hits that, that actually did work for me. And then like from there forward into the, the Shadowlands and like running into the other wizard in the Shadowlands and being like, damn, I guess, I guess he's not going to make it back. He's just, he's stuck here at the crosswalk and can't decide which way to go. He's mm-hmm. just going to be here. Like that stuff is cool. And like leaving through the this the kind of like it's not an abandoned city, but it's a city of the dead. Um, all that stuff is neat. The the like ghosts who who uh, just are hanging out on the island of Celador. So wait, it's not Celador, is it? It is. Cel- well, wait, Celador. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's mm-hmm. probably it maybe a it's, Tolkien reference. That's what I was going to ask. Is that is yeah. Tolkien where that's from? I don't even uh, know if that's Tolkien's even true. Celeborn. No, 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 no. no, no. Celador. The cellar door. Oh. The most beautiful sound in the euphonic sound, like phrase from Donnie Darko. Yeah, <laughs> is that in Donnie Darko? I guess it is. Yeah, it's in Donnie Darko. Yeah. Okay, it's it's attributed to Tolkien, so I don't know if it's uh, no, actually it's a thing Tolkien said or if it's just yeah. a thing Donnie Darko made up. It was cooler to do this in 1972, though. You know, <laughs> now it's yeah. it's played out. Yeah. It's it's corny. It's cringe. But in 1972, you're like, ooh, if you know, you know, Celador. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't have any. I didn't have any feelings about Celador. I, it only just hit me. Um, anyway, yeah. the bit there where like the ghosts keep showing up, and Ged has to be like, "Get out of here! You're just, mm-hmm. you just." Mm-hmm. And when and when Aaron is like uh, a little shook about it, and Ged is like, eh, just the dead. <laughs> Don't worry about it." <laughs> I like this better when it happened to Hellboy forty years later. Yeah, yeah. Because do you all this stuff happened to Hellboy? <laughs> do you think this entire finale stuff is um, Le Guin? Um, presciently uh, anticipating Peter Jackson's revision of the final act of Return of the King, where Aragorn goes and gets literal ghosts to fight his battles for him. Mm-hmm, the army of the dead. <laughs> the army of the dead. And and she's like, no, stop it. It doesn't work like that. Even though that movie hasn't come out for another. Yeah, I think yeah, so. She yeah. glimpsed okay. the that truth. Out to me. Yeah. Okay. Do you think that she did kind of like the like the Leonardo DiCaprio pointing meme when she saw it in a movie theater? She did. She was like, <laughs> "Can ah. you imagine that?" Because you know that happened, right? You know that Ursula Le Guin went to see the Lord of the Rings in has a she, movie theater. Has she has she said anything about those? Oh, I'm sure. I haven't. I, I I'll be honest. I don't know about much. You know, post like 2000s of Le Guin. So uh, we'll get there though i mean what that's that's the wild thing is the second trilogy is also around that time period too so i'm sure that we're going to learn some some stuff about that um i really think there's a tension here i'm glad that we're having this conversation because it's really made me think about this kind of ending of the book because ultimately what happens is they like defeat the bad guy and close the door right and it does take all of ged's magic 
I think there's a real fundamental tension between this being a more than the other two. It really, I, I agree with what you said earlier, Austin. More than the other two, this feels like a book for children. And I don't think you can kill Ged in a book for children. But I fundamentally believe that Ged should have died closing that door. Yeah. Yeah. It should have killed him. Yeah. And he should have been obliterated into dust. Say more. Mm-hmm. I just think you should. there should be some stakes, right? There's this yeah. question that happens here where Ged, or not question, but like um, debate. Maybe, yeah, there's right? this dialogue. Between, like, yeah, dialogue between immortality, right, as a virtue, which is like right. what the bad guy's saying. And Ged saying, well, actually, like, to, to die in the world and not stave off death, to die in the world is to live forever. Real immortality is dying. Did you know that? Yeah. And you get to become nature and you get to become all those things. Ogeon was trying to learn all the names of, right? Like you get to become the thing worth contemplating. And that's right. like virtuous inherently. That is, that is good. And I think that it would have been, and then there's all the setup of him being like, well, I hope I get to be the one to kneel in front of the king. Right. Maybe I won't right. be. Maybe and I if do. he could do the thing of I ushered in the world, but I don't get to see it. But you don't get to see it because that's it's just always better, right? It's always better to usher in the good world and not see it. We're all agreed on this. I think yeah, it's, it's sure. you know, I loved that as a kid when I was when I was doing my Bible study. I loved that Moses yeah. didn't get to get there. And yeah, and, he never got there. Yeah. It's good. Caesar didn't either in the end of the the Planet of the Apes movies. <laughs> You're right. Caesar basically a modern day Moses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you kind of. Kind of yeah. I didn't finish them. I hear they're, they're good. good. I hear they're great. I watched the first one. I'm like one of those guys. The third one's really good. Yeah, that's, that's it's right like kind of a journey to the uh, what is it? Journey to the West. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. That it's one of those where it's like four different types of plot all kind of crammed together in cool. this big epic. It's really good. Um, but but I I do think that that Ged. I think he should have died there, and he should he should not have been even guaranteed the thing that he says that that death gives you dying in the shadow lands right is, is it's not guaranteed but it's worth it in order to put that damn kid on the throne i had a thought earlier today after between finishing this while cooking dinner um thinking about what we talked about in the last episode kind of a um some some discussion we had around our feelings about the tomb of adawan right mm-hmm. tombs of adawan you can hear me filibustering there while trying to remember the name of that damn book. I'm doing it constantly. Um, I feel you. It's like, yeah, I don't know what's up. Uh, I think, you know, I, for me, like the book just hits on some basic level because I like the melancholy tone. I like all that stuff. Yeah. Sometimes you got to blow up the world. And I think that another uh, reason for that or a way that I got there in my life is I saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind before I saw E.T. Mm-hmm. You know the way that like people yeah. kind of in our age bracket talk about ET, the extraterrestrial, yeah, it's no, like actually. a load bearing thing for their childhood. You don't have that, Michael. People in your you don't know the ET people. I would You're say from Indiana. I, I, I yeah, I guess that's it. I mean, I would say people knew what ET was when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone that I knew like we never talked about ET as like a but thing. People, okay, I, well, I'll sorry. say people just a few years older than we are too, right? People yeah, okay, who are like there we go. five. I think five I'm to a, ten years old. You, I'm like two or three years older. I don't know how old you are, but I think I'm a couple of years older than both of you, and I do think mm-hmm. that that is the case for my generation, yeah. and I think more for the, our collective generation is a Jurassic Park. I know that's yes. not an alien movie, but 
It is a Spielberg movie. But Jurassic Park fits in here too, right? Yes. The the but but it for is me, not like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah, Close Encounters of the Third Kind was like I, I probably saw that when I was ten, you know, somewhere in there. And at the end of that damn movie, spoilers for Close Encounters, but their dad is like, I think I'm gonna go ex- to see what happens with these goddamn aliens. Yeah, I'm going to abandon my planet and family because it's important to understand the possibility of it, right? And obviously that's like Spielberg working through all his stuff, right? You know, it's a (laughs) real two-dimensional projection going on there, right? In the oeuvre. (laughs) But that to me was always like, whoa, what? Like, wow. And then I saw like all these other ones where you like, you know, reality gets fixed at the end. You know, you you restore everything to its rightful place. All these other Spielberg movies, they don't hit. Not good to me. I think that's how I feel. That's why I like the Tombs of Adawan so much. Why I don't like this so much. It's like Tombs of Adawan is like, I guess you got to go live your damn life. Sometimes your dad goes with aliens. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Here, your dad never goes with aliens. Your dad gets on the helicopter with Ian Malcolm (laughs) at the end. Okay, well, he does go, he doesn't go to the aliens, but he kind of goes to the mountain. Yeah. I guess. He doesn't get, he doesn't go to your coronation. Yeah. Sometimes dad doesn't make it graduation. I don't know what to say. <laughs> That's what I was saying. I saw 1997's The Shining. Yeah. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> as, you may, as you may know, yeah. I have only watched the other one. <laughs> oh, the bad one. Right, yeah, yeah the, bad, the bad one. The unofficial one. The unofficial <laughs> one. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the non-canon one. Yeah. <laughs> K-canon uh, is when King was directly involved <laughs> with <the> film. <laughs> Yeah, there's there, there's the uh, inverse K canon rule in which the quality cha- uh, is mm-hmm. uh, oppositional to its K canonicity, right? Yeah. There's kind of like an inverted uh, X going on. Uh, check out our other show, Just King Things, where we talk about the works of Stephen King in publication order. But anyway, that's all to say that's that's why this book this book ends poorly is because it's not like Close Encounters and it's just like Jurassic Park. There we go. That's all I had to say. Do you want to know? What Ursula K. Le Guin said about Peter Jackson's Fellowship of the Ring. Oh, absolutely. This is from Rhythmic Patterns in the Lord of the Rings. That's uh, mm-hmm. the the end of this. She's I haven't read the whole piece. Um, mm-hmm. This piece growing out of my attempts to study and consider the rhythms of prose and written for my own amusement happily found a home in Karen Haber's anthology of writing on Tolkien, Meditations on Middle Earth, published 2001. I've added a brief note about the film version of the book of the trilogy released l- late in the same year. So here's the very end of that. Okay. Note, 2002, I enjoyed the film of The Fellowship of the Ring immensely and feel an awed admiration for the scriptwriters who got so much of the story and the feeling of the story into the brevity of a movie. I was sorry not to see the Barrow, the Barrow White's hand crawling towards Frodo, but they were very wise to leave out Tom, wise in all their omissions. Nothing was disappointing but the orcs, standard issue slimy monsters with bad teeth, bah. I expected that the greatest difference between the book and the film might be a difference of pace, and it is. The film begins at a proper foot pace, an old man jogging along in a pony cart. But soon it's off at a dead run, galloping, rushing, leaping through landscapes, adventures, marvels, and perils, with barely a pause at Rivendell to discuss what to do next. Instead of the steady rhythm of breathing, you can't even catch your breath. I don't know that the filmmakers had much choice about it. Movie audiences have been trained to expect whiz-bang pacing, an eye-dazzling, ear-splitting torrent of images and action leaving no time for thought and little for emotional response. And the audience for a fantasy film is assumed to be young and therefore particularly impatient. 
Watching, once again, the wonderful old film, Chushingora, which takes four hours to tell the comparatively simple story of the 47 Ronin, I marveled at the quiet gate, the silences, the seemingly aimless lingering on certain scenes, the restraint that slowly increases tension till it gathers tremendous force and weight. I wish a Tolkien film could move at a pace like that. If it was as beautiful and well-written and well-acted as this one, the Peter Jackson one is, I'd be perfectly happy if it went on for hours and hours. But that's a daydream. And I don't doubt that any drama, no matter how unwhizbang, could in fact capture the singular gate that is so deeply characteristic that so deeply characterizes the book. The vast idiosyncratic idiosyncratic prose rhythms of The Lord of the Rings, like those of War and Peace, have no counterpart in Western theatrical writing. So all I wish is that they slowed down the movie every now and then, even just held still for a moment and let there be a rest, a beat of silence. So you know she loved those special editions. <laughs> I, I, I love the pace. What if we ruined it, though? <laughs> <laughs> uh, could, yeah, we, could we record in a higher frame rate? <laughs> that would shift the pace around. God, mm-hmm. that's the real one. Can you imagine her seeing the Hobbit turned into a multi-film mm-hmm. super series? Are there four of those or just three? Three. Uh, three, yeah. They just did the three? Okay, yeah. Yeah. God. They're not good. Although there is a scene where a whole like army of I think dwarves like comes out of a hillside. I think I've seen just that scene. It's pretty cool. I, I <laughs> it's in like, the third, the third one, one, right? The, it's ill advised. Yes, yeah. the third one. I watched it it's at a hotel last no, it year. Should never have been made. <laughs> Objectively, a huge waste of money and time. Right? Just like you might as well just thrown it into a toilet. However. <laughs> I like looking at many of the things in it. So yeah. who can say if it's good or bad? Yeah. Ged. Yeah. That was, that's a Ged quote right there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Who can say? Who could say? What do you think of the big philosophical debate? I mean, we kind of like talked around this a little bit, but the immortality, mm-hmm. is it even worth your, your times as, as critics here? Do you feel like you, either of you have anything that's like meaningful to add to, and, and I really, I don't even I think mean it's the- nearly incoherent. Okay. <laughs> and, and and it's repeated over and over again. Ged says the same thing about five times. Mm-hmm. Which is that it's good. It's that death is scary, but it's good that it exists. And life is scary, but also beautiful. Death is scary because it's good that it exists. And also, here's what happens when you die. You become a thing that's not you, but you also get to be you. And so it's the preservation of the ego that's the problem. Right. right? So then, therefore, you should not be you, but you get to be reborn. You're reborn and all that. I mean, there's just a lot of repeating the same basic idea in a bunch of different language over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. That I don't find very compelling. Yeah. And, and the other guy's like, but I'm me. <laughs> I like to be me. That is what he says. And I also, that's pretty compelling. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's like, I don't want to be a rock. I want to yeah. be me. Well, and that's, you know, one of the implicit kind of contrasts here is with whatever was going on in Karg, right? Because Karg, like their belief system is in many ways, uh, we like I expected maybe like more of this to be made, right? Uh, I, I've mm-hmm. said that like seven times on this podcast episode, I think so far, right? That I expected kind of more to be made of a thing. Uh, but whatever the religion in Karg was before Ged got the world to scream so hard that it ate itself, uh, there was like the, we, we didn't talk about it much, but, um, 
Arha or Tenar uh, talks about like, you know, the, the cyclical reincarnation, like Arha is always Arha and it's always that specific priestess reincarnated over and over and over again. There's some gesture mm-hmm. about the the God Kings and their uh, assuming immortality. Uh, and then Arha, when she is looking at the creepy murals in the painted room, uh, she mentions that there, there are people whose souls don't yes. get to get reincarnated and they become these kind of like horrible harpy like creatures that she assumes are just like the, the people who populate the afterlife whose like souls get stuck there and they're not allowed to be reborn as people. And so they become monsters. And here we get this kind of echo of that with the big, vast, empty afterlife the dry lands and the people who are trapped there who don't really become monsters they just become people who stand there actually the thing that the the dry lands remind me of anytime the dead show up is uh the the waiting place in oh the places you'll go by dr seuss speaking Mm. of books for kids right (laughs) Mm. Uh right uh yeah it's, it's it's purgatorial is is kind of the or it's actually not purgatorial, right? It's it's uh, it's limbo versus purgatory, right? Right. Um, more so. Right. And so, uh, you know, there there's some sense that we can divine across the two books there that uh, uh, Karg had some sort of similar metaphysics going on, right? And and we know that Karg is a place that got rid of magic, like designed mm-hmm. magic out of its society. And now society, all societies are losing magic, not through choice, but kind of uh, because Cobb opened the door. Right. Well, and I, I mean, I, I'm going to try to give Cobb, give Cobb his time in the dark and in the, in the shadow here, which is like, let's, let's, if we go back to the context that Cameron, you set up at the beginning, mm-hmm. which was like, Hey, there's 1972, um, writing in the face of of you know the the failures of sixty eight, writing in the face of emerging mass market consumerism and and what Le Guin goes on to call materialism in the afterward, which we should probably just mm-hmm. start quoting from a little bit. Um, that exchange between Ged and Cobb, I'm not going to read the whole lead in, which is the stuff where where Ged is like, "Don't you get it? Like, yeah, Aerith Akbe died, but it, but also he's the eagles and he's the earth and the sunlight, and those are cool things." Um, uh, Cobb says, he says at the end of that, uh, who are you? Your immortal self. What is it? Who are you? And Cobb says, I am myself. My body will not decay and die. A living body suffers pain, Cobb. A living body grows old. It dies. Death is the price we pay for our life and all life. I do not pay it. I can die and in that moment live again. I cannot be killed. I am immortal. I, I alone am myself forever. Who are you then? The immortal one. Say your name. The king. Say my name. I told it to you but a minute since. Say my name. And Cobb says, you are not real. You have no name. Only I exist. And Ged says, you exist without name, without form. You cannot see the light of day. You cannot see the dark. You sold the green earth and the sun and the stars to save yourself, but you have no self. All that which you sold, that is yourself. You have given everything for nothing. And so now you seek to draw the world to you. All that light and life you lost to fill up your nothingness. But it cannot be filled. Not all the songs of earth, not all the stars of heaven could fill your emptiness. 
uh, Ged's voice rang like iron there in the cold valley under the mountains, and the blind man cringed away from him. He lifted up his face, and the dim starlight shone on it. He looked as if he wept, but he had no tears, having no eyes. His mouth opened and shut, full of darkness, but no words came out of it, only a groaning. At last, he said only one word, barely shaping it with his contorted lips, and the word was life. Uh, and I think that if you can step past so much of this book, it does come back to the individual and does the individual choose blank or blank? How does the individual respond to their contexts? But if you see Cobb as a stand-in for American culture, what was the price you paid, right? You mm -hmm. emptied yourself out for immortality. You emptied yourself out to become a superpower. You emptied yourself out of life and love. And now you want to fill it with all of the songs of the earth, you know, through a, a, a mass market uh, cultural imperialist media, you know, empire. You want to fill it with the stars of heaven, which, you know, 1972, we are, we are, we are in space, baby. We are up there, you know? We have been on mm -hmm. the moon in the last decade. Um, but none of those things will fill the emptiness because we have given up all that matters in, in pursuit of a lasting society regardless of what it's cost us. And I think that you can make that case here, right? Um, yeah. I, unfortunately, yeah, I think that's a very coherent. Right. And so I want to make sure that we, we voice that there is that read here. And you can see Cobb as the stand-in for mm. uh, the death of culture, a culture that can't name yeah. itself, that can't even begin to name itself outside of in epithets like the immortal one and the king. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that, the only issue is that my eyes have rolled out of my head. I know. I'm currently traveling you're down not the street at 10, 55 miles an hour. Right. But yeah. You were you're not 10. You're not. And I think that of that's course. that's yeah. I, I don't like this book very much, but I'm I'm doing my best to after being, you know, in the last book, I was very critical of a book that I know a lot of people really like. And I think I've laid out my reasons for that pretty clearly. And here it's like, okay, I think mm -hmm. this is the one that everyone has told me they didn't like that much. And so, like, what is the other reading here? How could I find something in it? Because that is the voice. I have not heard, right? I think I if I read this in 1972, case. I would also like feel very different about it. Like I if I were just yeah, me probably. in 72, I would be like, hell Damn yeah, right. you got it. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. you've hit the nail on the head. This is the rot at the center of yeah. American culture. Yeah. But like I, you know, I I'm a millennial, but um uh, influenced heavily by Gen X and like yeah. Yeah. everything in my being is like looking looking <laughs> square at what happened here and and recognizing that historically i think this attitude that is being expressed here is just as much as, of a problem as anything else sure well, the and, only thing it could do is look the only thing it could do is react right it did not have a politics or a thought on its own and the next page is him going now you want a king i can show you the real king it's this kid right here <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's, it it's is like literally a beautiful bloodline over here yeah, that goes yeah. back to antiquity. Yeah, he, yeah. It's the right stuff. It's the good thing. Mm -hmm. It's nostalgia, right? Uh, yeah. And so, like, I, I think, like, I'm as much of a problem reading it in 2024. Yeah. I don't think it's a problem in here with the book. I think that probably in its time and in its moment, this probably felt extremely powerful to read, right? It's just then I we lived through about 50 years of this not working. Sure did. No effect whatsoever. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm burned out on it. Right. Yeah. You know? It's hey, not her fault. Is Aaron a gunslinger? Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. Okay. This is the closest that Ursula Le Guin and Stephen King have ever been to one another <laughs> this uh -huh. book, by the way. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, 
I, you know, I don't know if Le Guin ever wrote about Stephen King. I'm very curious to find that now. Yeah. And I don't know that King ever wrote about Le Guin. He had to have said something, right? At Maybe some point, not. probably. The man said a lot of words over the years. That's Michael what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, we've read a lot of Stephen King's words. Uh, I can't tell you where it's happened, though. I've read a lot of Stephen King interviews. I cannot say where it is. But but he's not good at naming his sources all the time either, right? So yeah. he got better in the 90s. But anyway, um, this Seuss page you sent over is exactly right. It, it is. Well, you call this the waiting place? Where? Where? What book is this in? It's from Oh, the places you'll go. Oh, you. I'm sorry, you did say that. No, yeah, it's totally blanked. Yep. And it's uh, just a. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, a vast nighttime desert with just a bunch of people standing <laughs> around waiting for things to happen. There it is. This is like where the TikTok man lives from that Harlan Ellison story. <laughs> I thought you meant someone from TikTok. Yeah, that's, I, that's where I thought we were going to. I don't know the I don't know the story you're talking about. Harlan oh, Ellison you don't story. know it? No. Repent uh, Harlequin said the TikTok man. I don't think I know, know the story. No. I, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you the like the gloss on it for yeah. everyone. Everyone should go read the story. It's, it's good. <laughs> I won't I won't spoil the ending for you, but basically it's like what if there was a like a fascist that controlled the clock of everything and then the Joker showed up and mm-hmm. then annoyed everyone too much? Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a very big model for like V for Vendetta. Yes. Yeah, a hundred percent. It mm-hmm. is it is what V for Vendetta is seems basically one for one patterned after. I don't I don't I don't know yeah. if that's actually true or not, but like uh yeah it's it's great and the the whole deal that the harlequin does is he just like makes everyone late for work or um like yeah puts jelly beans everywhere and so people have to clean the jelly beans up and now everyone's like two hours behind right no i think dr seuss would have a solution for that which is you just get some sort of creature that eats the jelly beans (laughs) yeah they don't have that that's that's that that's what's happened but it's basically just like hey all these assholes telling you to get to work at 8 a.m. They can shove it. <laughs> I'm Harlan Ellison. And I'm here to tell you. Well, that's what I want from Ged. Yes, same. That's the Ged I miss. I miss the Ged, the old Ged. Uh, and not the old Ged. Not the old Ged. Uh, dude gets crowned king. Yeehaw. Here we are. We're done. All right. That's the end of this book. Um. The next book that we're doing. Wait, the is, afterword, because we have to say that you finished the right. book and all the all converse, right. all the ideas we just had were in our yeah. heads, all of our heads. Yeah. We finished this book. Mm-hmm. And they all, but, but in the island of Gaunt, they tell the story otherwise. Like, okay, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Turn yeah, the page. Oh, there's what's two different that? stories. Oh, maybe there's like two sides to every story. Right, yeah. And we turn the page. Okay, what's yeah. this What's this afterword going to be about? It's about dragons. Dragons are perhaps above all beautiful. That's not where it starts, but like... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a really funny afterword that is it's it's not um it's actually it gets somewhere right because part of the afterword is a michael classic which is uh w- writers talking about whether they get to write the books they write or not mm-hmm. <laughs> um and leguin's position is really clear which is like um i don't always have control on what i write but i always have responsibility for what i publish right right and what i write which i think is is you know, I think that that is the compatibilist perspective uh, as a as someone who writes stuff sometimes. Like, I am pretty firmly in the, like, at the end of the day, it was on me person. I'm I'm in control. But I do get the impulse of, like, 
ooh, sometimes you surprise yourself. That does happen mm-hmm. to yeah, me as absolutely. a writer, for sure. And I think this is a, yeah. a good... Sometimes you get the characters of talking to one another. Yeah, ooh. totally. And, so and, and the different, uh, you know, where, where, where uh, we draw the line, Michael and I tend to be, and people can draw the lines in different places, but... Uh, uh, they got talking, and then you wrote down the things that you thought that they said, and then you made a decision whether to keep those things or throw them no, away. No, see, because the character said the slur, not the writer. No, yeah. no. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just that's just what they said. I just wrote it down. I just wrote it down. Just a just a, a, a reality transcriber over here. That's right. <laughs> Many such realities just, are just happening a leather vein me. for some fake people yep. that live in your mm-hmm. head. People should all listen right? to a Homestuck made this world. <laughs> good, good. Sounds sounds good to me. But yeah, so th- we do have. I actually really like that part. Of yeah, this. that part's great. Mm-hmm. I thought that was cool. Uh, and then we get this thing where it's like, uh, hey, maybe you don't need to be uh, smoking that reefer mm-hmm. because it's a. Uh, abdication of moral virtue being an irreligious puritan and a rational mystic i think it's irresponsible to let a belief think for you or a chemical dream for you yeah everybody's become drug i love dependent. it i love i love i mean <laughs> i mean i don't i this i'm i'm exaggerating i'm always smoking that reefer the reefer called ideology <laughs> <laughs> it's just like Ooh. such a it's not a thing i would ever associate with her no, right. me either. But and I don't. You know. I do wonder would she have said this in 1972? Because all of these were written for the 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 early right. 2000s. Yeah, thing, yeah. Right. I don't think she needed to because she, she wrote the Hort Town chapter. <laughs> no, I mean, I, yes. Like obviously, like the idea. But I would she have said it so clearly and so succinctly in 72, or would she have had a more complicated? Because as you said earlier, the Hort Town thing is both these people have been failed by their government, but also yeah. they had the opportunity to step up and they didn't, right? Like yeah. it, it it does both things. This afterward does no, not does do not, both does things. It says sometimes drugs dream your dreams for you. Yeah. That seems different. This is notably written after the crack epidemic. Right. right sure. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes it even weirder. Um, you know, I just don't think that I could get through like <laughs> Nixon. Reagan, yeah. Reagan, Bush, and then like into Bush too, and be like, yeah. Sometimes people let drugs dream their dreams for them, right? I just don't. It's not, 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 not the way that I would get there. I, I had another weird quibble here too, right? Or, 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 uh, yeah, quibble is probably the right word. Which is uh, talking about dragons, and she says, as tigers, uh, the dragons are perhaps above all beautiful. As tigers are beautiful, could anyone regret having seen a tiger? Unless, of course, they had a little while to regret it while the tiger ate them. Yes. I've seen a tiger in real life one time, and I have regretted it ever since. Say more. I went to a zoo. And you were like, I hate the zoo because the zoo is a cool I was place. like this. Yeah. I, I, you know, I was... Um, ambivalent on zoos i've been to a zoo i think twice in my whole life one time i was like really really small and then one time is like a thinking adult right Mm -hmm. uh and i went one time and i will never go back to a zoo i don't don't go to aquariums i don't go to any of those things because the very experience of being there is just a living nightmare to me the the notion that uh, that i would rather the animals not exist than be in that condition even in the most ethical zoos. I just, I feel sure. so strongly about yeah. a zoo, mm-hmm. right? 
And and so like that's an interesting thing for me here too, right? In in these books that are about ethics, right? Fundamentally, and I'm not saying like, oh, I have the ethical high ground. That's that's uh-huh. not what I'm saying. But I am saying that like what what's fascinating about this thing to me is like there there are instances in which there are ethics of like being and doing and witnessing and being responsible for as a society, right? Uh-huh. Like all those things are. Uh, separate and they interface with one another as well, right? They're, they're connected, but also can be looked at as individual things. And like, obviously, this is just like a beautiful metaphor or whatever she's doing, <laughs> right? But that is something that's interesting about these Earthsea books is like, so far up, you know, in the books for children at the beginning, they take, they paint with a broad brush, when it when it comes to like ethical questions, as we've talked about with the thing with Ged and living and dying, being immortal at the end, right? And I do wonder with the with the second trilogy, right? And being books that she wrote way after the fact that are, as far as I know, I've never read them, but I know that they are in conversation with more heavily mm-hmm. these early books. And I get the sense, although I don't know if this is true or not, I get the sense they're not written for children anymore. I get a sense these are like adult follow-ups to those children's books. And so I wonder if the broad brushes that we found interesting and not interesting in uh-huh. equal measure across the three books, I wonder if those things are going to, the stakes, the kind of ethical questions that are being asked, the questions about society, governance, all these things, I do wonder if they are going to get like, more complicated in the quote-unquote adult versions of these books, or if Earthsea inherently for Le Guin kind of carries a a linear or uncomplicated set of ethical concerns. Two things. One, mm-hmm. when I read this, I thought about the Zaheer from Borges. Which, oh, of course, yeah. Which in one moment was a tiger, and I thought about that time the guy was like, damn, if only my here was a tiger, I could have forgotten about it then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is very funny, right? Because he also says, uh, I would, I, you know, who could anybody regret having seen a tiger? He's like, no, not me. I would just, I would love to have seen a tiger. I wouldn't regret it at all because it wouldn't have an effect on me. But mm-hmm. later in this se- section, a thing that I do like here mm-hmm. is she kind of says like, yeah, but t- you know, dragons got away from me. They're not just tigers in my story. They they have mm-hmm. speech. Yeah. Um, they don't learn it. They have it from the beginning. Um, and she says, you know, when I wrote The Farthest Shore, I saw dragons as wildness itself and thus as utterly other than human. And yet, looking back, I see that I already felt their otherness is not absolute. They share a language with us or some of us, and as no animal does. And when Cobb's desire for immortality leads him to make a breach in the human world from which life and light drain out like water through a breach in a dike, the dragons are damaged by it just as human beings are, losing their reason, their power of speech, their magic. I didn't mm-hmm. understand why that was so when I wrote the book, but I knew it was so. Which again, which sets up for me the same question you have, which is like, okay, she's tackling something here about what does what what does it mean to say something is nature mm-hmm. versus you know human made or civilization or whatever you know whatever binary you want to set up there, um, the natural and and the the unnatural. It doesn't quite it doesn't quite map cleanly. There are there are boundaries there, and then so like, wh- what's the ethics that pours out of that? And in this book, it's as simple as it's good to die and become the sand. You know, sand is good too. Uh, and that's a very uncomplicated <laughs> ecological ethics, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I'm curious if by the 90s when we get to these next books, mm-hmm. if that develops in any direction. Hey, you know who doesn't think sand is good? Anakin Skywalker. Yeah, that's yeah. right. 
Is that why you were giggling, Michael? Yeah. Yeah. I was also imagining like if, if on like the dust jacket of the big tome, if it was just like Earthsea, sometimes sand is good too. Sometimes mm-hmm. sand is good too. Yeah. It's true. Hey, you know what's uh interesting? Both of our series so far, if we stopped here, right, it would be the Earthsea trilogy. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be fair, like some people would be, would find it fair to stop here, right? Because uh, essentially what we're doing with Earthsea is reading two trilogies kind of back to back, right? That are related. Right. So uh, our first unit we did was on Book of the New Sun, yeah, which kind of ends with Severian walking on the beach. It's not the literal ending, but oh. that's kind of like the beginning of the, you know, the, the climax there, yeah. the very end. And here we get Ged and uh, Aaron on the farthest shore, which is really where the climax happens and everything else. You know, it's kind of like afterward to it. Mm-hmm. It's pretty interesting to me. Anakin Skywalker, also from a planet covered in sand. That's right. SpongeBob SquarePants mm-hmm. lives in a pineapple under, under the, the sea. sea. Yeah. SpongeBob. On, on what? Oh, I don't know. Is there not? Is there more? He's on sand. He's on oh, sand he's on under sand. the sea. He's on sand. Yeah. I see. That's all I want to say. SpongeBob SquarePants. Um, I don't, I'm not a Sponge. I, this is this is a generational slight difference. I just miss SpongeBob. And I feel it every day. I saw some so I'm, talking I, I'm not like deep in SpongeBob. Right, but you I, I have four a or five brother, years so younger I, than me. I caught yeah. a little. Right. I kind of caught some SpongeBob by by virtue of having a slightly younger brother. It, mm. it sometimes feels like having never seen The Simpsons. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would say uh, for generationally, like my my issue is we just never had cable ever. Right. Mm-hmm. right. So right, That's I was gonna ne- get you, and yeah. that your dad was always changing the day. Yes. If if we had no, <laughs> seriously. No, no, no. Seriously, as a child, I would have conversations like with my mom. I'd be like, could we get cable? And she would be like, oh, why? So your dad can zip between like 120 channels constantly? She's right. Yeah. She's right. She's right. Yeah. Damn. You didn't need all that shit. People should go listen to was that a Just Keep Things bonus episode? Or was that no, it was the main one for um, Storm of the Century, right? No, I think it was the bonus episode. Was it the bonus episode? Yeah, because you watched bonus the bonus episode, episode right? Yeah. yeah. You watched the, the the TV movie or whatever. Yeah. Yep, <laughs> we <series>. did. <laughs> Um, <sighs> and if you want to hear us talking about the Zaheer, you got to subscribe to this uh, bonus. The bonus episodes for this thing because yeah. we talked about Borges over in one of those bonus episodes. If you're like, what's the yeah. Zaheer? Isn't that just something from Friends at the Table that Austin referenced last last season? No, it's Borges. I said I said mm-hmm. it was Borges then, and I you know, but now you can go listen to us talk about it mm-hmm. on this page. Patreon.com slash ranged touch will get you there. Um, so yeah, I, I neither of you. I I think this is confirmed, but let, let's just make sure neither of you have read any of these uh, Earthsea no. books going forward. Right? No, no. I yeah, know a little bit about the next one, and that's all. But I haven't read it. I don't know anything about any of them. What do you so, think? And I don't know the answer to this. But the next book okay. is called Tahanu. What yeah. do you think Tahanu is? It's probably a person. Yeah. Mm. That's got. I the did feel look. I don't think it, it's on an island. I don't think. Uh, I it's not. It it's map. not like a. I was like. I think it's like a volcano. That would be cool. That would be cool. <laughs> I have <laughs> no really idea. Volcanoes in, uh, in Earthsea. Not yet. This is. This is going to happen. The Do fire they, lords they you know, emerge either, from right? Tahanu. Isn't that true? What has is? there been a named mountain yet? Yeah, the mountains of pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this but book, that, yeah, that. I mean, but you know, like, like a like. Yeah, I know what you mean. 
Yeah, I like, don't think they do. Yeah, I, I don't want to like reveal such. where I'm from. I was about to say like the name of like local mountains where I'm from. Right. But I don't, I don't mm-hmm. do oh yeah, Cameron's backyard mountain. Yeah, yeah. there you go, <laughs> Mount Cameron. <laughs> yeah, but like that, right? That's what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Like mountains yeah, of pain, I guess, counts, there... right? But but you know, like no, there. She doesn't uh, do the the thing that a lot of. I think fantasy writers can fall into is just like giving proper names to all the mountains and rivers and things, yeah. right? Yeah. There's no like Austin's peak. You no, know? there was like Gaunt Mountain or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, but it's like, like the, the mountain, mountain of on Gaunt. Gaunt. I think, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Hmm, that's fascinating to me. But yeah, it's not not names. an island. There's at least as far as I can tell by looking yeah. at the map. I mean, maybe that's part of the the way that Earthsea really works, right? Is like because people know things have a real name. You don't have to waste your time giving things a name. Right. Mm. Uh, okay, there is a mount in this book. What is it? When the changer is holding the little crystal, which again, we only kind of move past this quickly, but in the middle of another chapter, we <laughs> oh, zip yeah. back to Roke and the master changer and the master summoner are like looking through this little crystal um, and the changer looks through um, and says, uh, you know, I, I see the earth even as I as as though I stood on Mount On in the center mm. of the world. Mm. That's the first time in all of these books that we got a Mount something for the EPUB I have open on my on my desktop. Gotcha. That's fascinating. And it's like that seemed like an important one. Yeah, you know? they're looking in, into like a like a half palantir, half elf stone. Yeah. 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 It kind of fucks them up. It's not good. You don't want to, you don't, I really think, what was the name of the former Archmage? Oh, it's, like, it's who, in here. Mount On is right in the middle of the map. Oh, it's right there? Yeah, it's, it's like on Havnor, right in the kind of middle right side. Huh. Anyway. Sure. What was the name the, of the uh, Elf Mage? What? No, yeah, the Elf Celebrimbor. Yeah. Celebrimbor. No, the, uh, what's the name of the Archmage who like took over at the end of the first book? Genshin. You said his name earlier. Gensh, Genshin. Genshin Impact, yeah. Genshin Impact. That's right. Uh, So Genshin is like cool because it seems like he might have been like kind of evil. Because he's the guy who brought this like weird Palantir thing with him. Oh, is this his? Yes, it's his. He He brought it with him and he just never took it back. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the stone of Sheliath. You have to understand when I turned the page and saw this, I was like, are you kidding me? Are we really (laughs) in chapter eight or nine? It's chapter nine. There's three more chapters left. Mm-hmm. You turn We're the page. Cut away to like these two dudes. And just, it's like, and the stone stuff? of something, something is here. I'm like, am I supposed to care about the stone now? Is this stone about to be important for the final three chapters? It isn't. It isn't. It's just a cool thing that exists. But, you know, maybe it'll become important mm-hmm. later. Who could say? Yeah, there's, I'm now looking at the map. There's quite a few like Mount blah blahs. Okay. We just haven't shown I just up. Hadn't, I hadn't looked closely. Yeah. Anyway. anyway. All right. Well. We'll be back uh, shortly with uh, an episode on Tahanu. We are reading the whole book, Tahanu. Uh, after that, we will be do- covering uh, Tales of Earthsea, which is the short story collection. We're splitting that in two because it's actually pretty long, mm-hmm. despite not having too many stories in it. So we'll be splitting that in two. And then we will be doing The Other Wind and then kind of a big wrap-up episode dealing with some of this smaller stuff um, that's at the end of this omnibus version which I think are stories that are only available here or were like published in weird places and not collected somewhere else. So we'll be doing all of that stuff. We've got a couple more bonus episodes uh, coming through. We uh, just recorded a little while ago, Labyrinth. We'll be uh, doing that. The next one we'll have coming up after that is The Dark Crystal. 
And then after that, probably some Le Guin nonfiction that we have selected. And then after that, I guess the Earthsea movie. We right? should watch the, be the last anime movie. Earthsea. We should probably yeah, not watch the bad made-for-TV movie. Maybe, maybe we should. I don't it know. It does don't have a Hallmark production company crossover. Oh, does it? I don't It It does. I remember uh, yeah, when it came th- out, and I remember watching like the first of the... Because there's like a few, is it like it's like a few episodes? Isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a mini like series. series. Yeah, I think I watched the first one at the time. I was like, no, I'm good. Yeah. White Gad was not doing it for me. No offense to uh, <laughs> whoever the hell that Sean Sean Ash uh, Ashmore is who they got for him. Iceman. They got Iceman. Yeah, cool. They did. I like him. Uh, yeah, we should save the the anime film for later because my understanding is that it is actually mixing together parts of not only the first three books, but some of the later ones as well. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. This says it includes Tahanu as well as Hayao Miyazaki's graphic novel, Shuna's journey. Now, wait a second. Okay. Huh. Just some stuff. It's just some things. No, that, that no wait a second. My man. Together. Yeah. <laughs> that's just, and remember, this is not a, that's not a, a Hayao Miyazaki flick it's a it's a goro miyazaki flick um uh, this is the one that goro f- first directed this is like there's like deep lore about like and this movie sucked apparently and mm-hmm. and his dad mm-hmm. was like not happy about it save you know? it save it just tell us about how much it's how I'm bad teasing. it is when we watch I'm it teasing okay. for for gotcha. it in the gotcha. future anyway but the idea that he was like and my dad's my dad wrote the, that cool graphic novel i'm putting some of that in here too is very funny <laughs> anyway oh i know this isn't very good Maybe my dad will like it more if I rip his work off and put it in there. Uh, we'll get there. A couple months from now. We will. All right. Well, uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. We will be back soon with another episode, and uh, we'll catch you with Chahanu soon. Go to patreon.com slash rangetouch in order to support the show. And I've got credits I need to read, but they are not pulled up directly in front of me. I got to scroll over to the thing. I minimize my window and forgot where I wanted to put it. I'm going to filibuster here until I do it. Cinderwell wrote and performed the theme song. Sam Beck made the podcast start, and Jordan Mallory edits and produces the show. You know, hands up in the chat for Jordo. Claps in the chat for Jordo. Michael, you want to take us out? Amid these stacks of straight and tall with tomes lined end to end, how are you to find your way? It's shelved by genre, friend.